When the voting was over in 2004, one man found himself at the wrong end of a smoking gun. Mr. Curtis, are there programs that can be used to secretly fix elections? Yes. How do you know that to be the case? Because in October of 2000, I wrote a prototype for Congressman Tom Feeney at the company I worked for in Oviedo, Florida that did just that. It would rig an election? It would flip the vote 5149. Certainly you go to the police. Somebody has just told so you. So then I go through the books. I have to have some sort of evidence because otherwise... What books do you go through? What are you we're talking about? Well, since I worked in the same department where the billing had come in, okay. I started looking through the contract and they had been over billing for me for years. And they were billing like 40 hours a week for forever. Were you working 40 hours a week on no. the Yang contract? Not at all. Not even close. Working on the NASA contracts and the Exxon Mobil contracts. And but and you were working 40-hour weeks, essentially? Mm hmm And all of that time was being billed to Yang, even though you were not doing all your right. work for FDOT? They even billed for a couple of days after I had left them and was working at FDOT. So I told Mavis George Alice, and she said, well, we need to go to the Attorney General's office. You and Mavis George Alice together? Yes. She went up with me and told the story, and I told my part of it. And the Inspector General was whom? Ray Lemmy. What complaints were made with Raymond Lemmy? Improper invoicing on the part of Yang Enterprises. Improper political influence because coming Tom. down from Tom Feeney I see. Uh, through my immediate supervisor, Nelson Hill, on behalf of Yang Enterprises, and the use by Yang Enterprises of unauthorized alien labor. I tell him everything that went on at Yang's. You tell him about the vote rigging software? Yes. You sure? Yes. In their report, it looks like you complained about the things that had to do with FDOT specifically. Well, that's the things that he could touch on. Ah. And all the other stuff he was supposed to pass on to, like the NASA stuff, he was right. going to pass to NASA and, you know. What was he going to do with the vote rigging stuff? He was supposed to pass it out, I guess, to where it goes. They claim that you didn't tell them. Seems odd, doesn't it? Instead of investigating this company, instead of putting, a, putting the brakes on what's going on, they're actually writing letters of recommendation for that company, Correct. Yang, Correct. and saying that you're removed. Correct. Tom Feeney's fingerprints are all over this thing? Yes. yes. Literal fingerprints. Literal fingerprints. I mean, read the public record. Read the public record. I don't want anyone to take my word for anything. People right. don't read anymore. Get the documents and read the record. And when you read a memo from Nelson Hill's secretary to him, stating that Mr. Feeney wants this letter signed today and this letter is a recommendation for Yang Enterprises and the following day after Mr. Hill executes this letter of recommendation he is suddenly promoted to Deputy CIO for the State Technology Office and Lemmy shows up Raymond Lemmy just comes in sometime and he's staring at me over the top of these little you know potato chip type holder. I walked over and said, can I help you? And he said, no, I'm just shopping. And then he leaves. Okay. And then he comes in again, tells me that he's been working on the case on the side. He's looking into this on his own On now? his own. For fun? I don't know. Why? What's he going to do with this information if he can't, if he's not doing it? In I guess if he gets fashion? enough of it, he thinks he can pop it somewhere. I don't know. So he keeps coming in and asking me questions about boat rigging and spies and I don't know necessarily what he wants, so I just answer whatever he asks. This was a big case that he was making headway on. Mm -hmm. It wasn't an official case because officially 
DOT was going to do nothing because Feeney wouldn't let him do anything. So I give him information, but he didn't give a lot back. Was he a friend of yours by that point? Not really. I liked the fact that he was actually working on it. Right. But I didn't necessarily know how much he was working on it and how much he was working on me. And what does he say? He's got it all ready to bundle up. He's going to pop the news in a couple of weeks, and I'll just be thrilled with the results. And I said, Memories. You, know, you better tell somebody. You better tell someone? Why? These people were not nice. Clint indicated to me that Ray Lemmy had told him that it was much bigger, that what he was investigating was much bigger and went higher. Clint said this to you? Yes, Clint said that to me. When he said all the way to the top, who did you think he was? Who, who was the top? I was thinking Bush. I didn't know whether it was just Jeb Bush or whether it went farther than that. From Feeney's conversation, he thought he was right with Bush. Feeney said that he was yes. right with Bush. Right. Both George and Jeb, so. Lemmy says to you, this corruption goes all One the way One big to happy right. family. And all I have to do is wait a couple weeks and I'll be thrilled with the results. So you waited a couple weeks. And he turned up dead in a Georgia motel room. Yeah, he did. When he said all the way to the top, who did you think he was? I was thinking, Bush. I guess he did it himself, right? My first right? thought was, they killed him. How did you feel about that? Guilty. You felt guilty? Yeah. If I hadn't brought it to him, then he wouldn't have gotten involved. What was they the don't cause have He wouldn't be dead. They said suicide, but they don't do autopsies in Georgia. If the, he would, died in Florida, it's an automatic autopsy. You mean if, you, if a suicide occurred in Florida, it would be an automatic autopsy? Automatic but autopsy. A suicide in Georgia, not mandatory? Not mandatory. It right. would have had to have occurred had he been killed in, not been killed. Well, my speculation is he offended somebody and he got killed. Yeah, he got killed. just yes. like that guy. Um, because... The hotel he was at is this real secluded, you know, tree lines on both sides. It's a little shabby $23 a night hotel. You know, if you wanted to kill yourself, why not stop somewhere in Florida? He was working out of Tallahassee, Florida. He was right? working out of Tallahassee. So he you were in Tallahassee at the right. time. Then there's Valdosta, which is just... Hour like and a half away. Hour and a half away, sort of a border town in Georgia. Yeah, it's up a ways. There are a lot of hotels he could have stopped at at Georgia prior to getting to Valdosta. The whole thing's just wrong. There's a report that he called into DOT at 6.45 in the morning, and yet they have him killing himself 38 minutes later, even though it's another hour to get to Valdosta. Supposedly he's in the motel room one night, right. but there's two receipts. In the police report it says one is a check-in receipt, the other is a check-out receipt. If he killed himself, he didn't check out. Well. Have you not checked into a motel room where they charge you up front? In other words, they check you in and check you out at the same time? On different days? I don't think they do that. Yeah, there's another problem with that. The first receipt is dated June 29, 2003. He was in Tallahassee June 29, 2003. He didn't kiss yep. his wife goodbye, as she says, until June 30th, 2003, 6.15 Who's in the room in Those June pesky facts! In the hotel room, they found a blank... With a legal pad okay. and an empty file folder. And right. every time he'd come talk to me, he'd have his little yellow pad and his little file folder full of papers. Are you suggesting that the papers are gone? Yes. 
And you're suggesting that somebody took those papers. Would you take a legal pad and a uh, manila folder to a suicide? Maybe he wanted to have a, a, a write a suicide note. Oh, the note's weird too, because he didn't talk about his daughter, and the daughter was just about to be married. And he mentioned his wife, right, by name. He has one child, a daughter. Daughter. He does not mention her. Does not mention her. But every time we talked at the dollar store, part of the conversation was, you know, how's your daughter? She's doing good. You know, get married, you know. Doesn't mention her in his suicide note. Mentions his wife. Did he sign a suicide Amateurs, note? Amateur, right? He put a time on it. Aww. The police say they took photographs, but due to the, a failure in the camera's flash memory, mm -hmm. there would be no photographs. Right. Mueller was FBI We've director then. Seen that there are in fact photographs that conflict the police report. That do conflict the police report. The Valdosta police report alleged there was no blood on the towel and no visible trauma to the body. The photographs of Raymond Lemmy seem to suggest otherwise. And Valdosta police have confirmed that these photographs are real and that due to interest on the internet in December of 2004, they reopened the case of Raymond Lemmy. Also around that time, they spoke with someone at the Florida Department of Transportation and that they closed the case shortly thereafter. Now, they won't tell me who it is they talked to at the Florida Department of Transportation. Uh, they told me over and over and over that they were not stonewalling me and then they didn't call me back ever again. Diebold was asking legal advice about having secretly installed uncertified software on voting machines to be used in the 2004 California election. It was a clear violation of the law. No one in America in the press was covering this issue. So I thought if I send all these documents to some reporter who doesn't know anything about the issue, they're likely to end up in the trash can. I knew I had to get them to somebody who had the press connections and the government connections to do something with these documents, and that obviously was Bev Harris of Black Box Voting. There's nothing worse than bootloader hack. And honestly, I haven't seen these kind of things to happen in 20 years. This you can do, you've confirmed this, this is, on, on the Diebold uh, touchscreen TSX machine. This is confirmed by me and proof of concept was written by Princeton University, so you have independent verification for my finding. In 2006, a Princeton University professor and two graduate students confirmed what Harry Hursty had already proven. They posted their demonstration on YouTube hacking the Diebold touchscreen machine in less than one minute's time. They inserted a vote-flipping virus that changed vote tallies, would spread to other machines, and flip an election without leaving a trace. But, you know, voter cheating and flipping votes and Department of Transportation sells something like 2,000 meals. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, this is all crazy, right? This has already happened. Like I said, it did. And so what was it? Oh, certified stuff. Oh, shoot. You mean the stuff I said in November? In fact, in D.C., November 12th. Here you go, guys. This is what we need to do. I know that they're manufacturing ballots. 
I know that they've paid off the slate of electors. Your governors are already paid off. This has already been decided because everything they did to remove Donald Trump, which is not about Trump. Again, it's not this Trumpism shit. It's that he's not part of the club and he wants to be president. I told them that in 2020. I said, we need to decertify all elections up until 2016 was the last valid one. And it wasn't even super valid. Because like I said, well, I've said this so many times before. So before we swap over uh, to Just Rumble, I did stream to my Facebook and my YouTube. I thought I would remind you guys who's testifying today because we're going to be streaming that testifying. And I'm going to remind you who in the supposed, and I'm using air quotes, you can't see me, supposed conservative circles, which really don't give a shit about you. Okay. All they care about is who funds them and if they have control and they've got some spotlight. Because if they actually cared, we wouldn't see some stupid gateway pundit rag bullshit say exclusive. The machines aren't certified. And it's like, get out of my face. I went with the evidence. I told them what the plan was. This is how they skirt around the law. How the EAC means absolutely nothing. And yet still still, still. They decided to chase ballots and start the narrative. Well, well, it was a good thing because if you can see how they manufacture the tangible evidence, right, based on what they used to call a virus is now known as an algorithm script, right? Just a little script. That's what viruses are. They're scripts. We just don't call them viruses anymore because they're not all infecting, They're just directing. And so instead of going that way, why not use the actual law? Because it's a congressionally passed act, which was a facade in itself because the EAC is bullshit. And just so you know, the EAC wasn't even a functioning agency for over a year because guess what? They didn't have a quorum. So basically all your machines post 2016 didn't even have a fake certification to say, hey, So uh, what I did in 2017, probably why I got myself, you know, wherever I was locally, they were going to get me in hot water with one of the dirtiest states that are here in our nation that nobody talks about. I sent letters and I was like, hey, so I don't see any certifications for the upcoming elections in 2017, right? And every single senator and congressman didn't take the bait. But Wyden did in Oregon. And he sent a letter to the to the head of Pro V and V on October 31st, 2017, saying, Hey, yo, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, you're not certified and certification is really important and stuff. And this is days before the 2017 election evidence, right there. I have been talking about this for a long time. So anyone sitting there saying, Oh, she's just riding on a train, she's girthing, fuck you. I've been fixing elections around the world like nobody's business. And it wasn't me coding the machines. It wasn't me making the machines. It was me convincing other governments. That was my job. Game theory. How do we get them to play our game? That was my job. Now, in the interim, obviously, when you're implementing a product, kind of like pharmaceutical salespeople, you know, the hot chicks with the boobs that run around a doctor's office, aside from being hot or maybe, you know, doing some questionable things to get them to sell their drugs. They actually know the medication. They're not pharmacists. They're just reps. Same thing here. 
I'm not a bona fide cryptographer, but I am an amateur cryptographer because obviously I'm going to learn about the things that I am making people get. You know, that's how it works. So, you know, uh, a prominent figure in supposedly telling you how he's going to stop the steal who hijacked a movement, some guy that all your conservatives put all their eggs in the basket, right? All of them, uh, oh, he's like the best. Like, what? Like, he's like a Christian, a Christian who was a sex toy, right? There's sex tapes with him and Carl Rove. I don't know, maybe it's the inbred jaw, right? Uh, there's uh, Lindsey Graham, told you guys he was gay. Yep, Lindsey Graham has had some of that jaw too. McCain had him too. And he really went hard on attacking me. When, you know, my friend put out a video with an asset of the cabal, very bitter asset because they got knocked out to not get money, right? But um, when we put out this video, he was suddenly an expert. So thank you, Nathaniel, for putting this nice clip together. I'm going to remind you who we're going to be watching in a few minutes. So for those of you that are on the other channels, please hop over to Rumble because we're going to have some amazing original music, uh, you know, that I can't play on these channels. So here we go. Let's take a look at him. Here's the guy that had contact with people in the White House that apparently are not on America's side. Should we unfollow Tory? Uh, yeah, she's clearly a, a leftist plant. She's a disinformation agent sent here to corrupt Q into attacking the president. That's it. They have targeted me with uh, death threats, uh, harassment by a botnet. I'm still making my way through that document documentary, documentary. Uh, and I got to tell you, it's got real satanic energy. So Tori is one of these people who just searches the internet all day. And what happens when you search the internet all day and you're not, you don't, you're not a Christian, you don't have the ability to use a discernment or you don't have the ability to just be objective while you collect. Yeah. So I search the internet in the future and tell everyone exactly what's happening. Cause if you guys know in 2020 summer, I told you they're taking the elections before in 2018, I told you you would lock yourself in their house, but you know, it's just Google. I just Google shit. All the information you think you've collected all the information. So I can see how someone internet searching for four hours, five hours would experience fatigue and then get very, very confused. <clears throat> but that's not the case. That's not the case. I'm okay with a Christian monarchy and getting rid of advertising. Someone said Christian monarchy leads to more war. Great way to kill the American experiment and dream. See, look, these Tory trolls, they're anti-Christian, they're anti-God, they're anti-Trump. I am the reckoning. This could sound like an ego to a lot of people who aren't familiar with my record. But this is what I do for a living. I don't work. It's a ministry. So Cambridge Analytica is a company that Bob Mercer owned. Bob Mercer has given me money in the past to conduct um, you know, certain political operations that were my ideas, not his ideas. So the Cambridge Analytica stuff is I, it's just so patently fake that it's stupid. Um, I don't know what Roger's opinion is on um, psychoanalytics. Uh, we're still so, so new 
to that field. It is something I support, um, but uh, I'm not something. I'm not sure that it's something Roger would support. Which IIA? I'm going to tell you this. This is so stupid. I, I mean, I can't even believe we're going through this. Alex Jones pioneered um, the study of certain things, right? Operation Paperclip with the Nazis. Operation Mockingbird. Do you guys hear that? So he's talking that it's fairly new, but it was in the 60s. And Alex Jones pioneered all that shit. First time I've heard of it. Haven't you? Well, let's take a look. How, how much of that did he pioneer? With the media. I thought that it was a matter of real concern that a scientist story that intended to serve a national Oh, that's Alex abroad, Jones, right? Um, came home and were circulated here and believed here because um, this would mean that the CIA could manipulate the news in the United States by channeling it through some foreign country. Uh, and then whatever that is, you know, the act that Congress changed to allow for domestic propaganda. What y'all need to understand is like, okay, Alex Jones has pioneered this for 25 years. <laughs> blah, blah, sure blah, he did. Blah, blah. That doesn't matter to me. Um, the fact is, is that why are these people grifting off of this? These people are alleging that Alex Jones is a part of these things that he helped pioneer for the American people. He is. I'm genetically superior than most human beings, and I work to be spiritually gifted, if not superior. Inbreds, genetic. I got killer instincts because I have discernment. Yes, I have a natural, advanced, biological predisposition to feel the earth, to feel the heavenly realms. I have a natural, biological, <laughs> I don't believe in evolution, but I have a natural extra antenna that most human beings don't have. Lulu, this is crazy. This is crazy. Nothing Q has ever posted has been this crazy. And you're not gonna reverse psychology me. That's so 1992, you know? That's so 1992. You're not going to reverse psychology into me not vetting source material. Remember they said they were gonna put me in jail for wearing a bulletproof vest and now everyone's wearing it? How many people remember I started that trend? How many people remember I started the trend of the bulletproof vest in public? Someone said, I, I remember 50 Cent doing it in 2004. Right, 2004. So read what you wrote. Read what you wrote or don't. I don't really care. I'm just telling you who I am. Okay. This is in a lot of other areas. I suck. I suck at ordering groceries. I suck at maintaining a healthy diet. Yeah. And I'm about to stop eating fast food. Hopefully starting next week. Her verbal IQ is trash. Her diet is trash. All skinny. Look at this. Healthy. Healthy. You know, 20 years I've been a Christian. 20 years I've been a Christian. I know what it's like to call forth our higher self. Hazard reported ahead. She reminded me of that person. Heck, she might be working with that person. And when I thought about that, I said, no, 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 not today, Satan. You have to understand, I would die. I would be willing to die 
fighting a righteous battle against that mother that I appreciate your support you guys are watching everything that I said come true and um, you know I still you know I just wish Tori and Millie would stop stop the lies but when I found out that you are a bad evil human being you know I know couple people in the chat room know there are only a couple people who reach that Voldemort like status I knew it was the battle that God called me to which I knew God, it was the battle that God called God, me to which God which God see this is the guy that you know, obviously, Truth Social, everybody calls it Ollie Social, right? Because he's everywhere and he has like a hundred, you know, different accounts and he boasts himself. But, you know, I talked about the color revolution uh, with his orange squares before, um, what, I think it was like June or July of 2020, that millennial Millie, Millie and her husband Gavin and I were having a powwow. We're like, dude, something's like brewing up. And you know, because we lie uh, right before the lockdowns, we made a video telling you how you're going to have IDs because of these vaccines. Uh, you know, and, and, and real ID is the problem because any of you thinking that you're going to fix this in 2024, you're wrong. In 2023, you'll be required to have real ID. And the things that you're seeing coming out, which have been happening for a while in China, where the social credit course score system will not allow you to enter uh, any facility or uh, you can't go withdraw from your bank if your QR code, you know, the COVID passport stuff, right? That one, your ID code is not green. That's what real ID is. So, uh, you know, I started investigating the whole color revolution um, a while back. Uh, and then he started to attack us when we told everyone about the Kraken without calling it the Kraken. And, uh, you know, and this is a demon, right? <laughs> this guy is insane. But you got to hop over to Rumble. I'm going to put the link again in uh, the chat box uh, because that's where we're going to be streaming with a ton of popcorn because what did I say in 2020 before the elections? That guy is going to be the reason that they're going to indict our president, right? Oh, I guess I'm just really good at Googling. That's it. I'm just really good at Googling. There's no other, uh, you know, explanation. I'm just fantastic at Googling into the future because, you know, time travel, which is also known as predictive analytics, which is quantum computing, which we apparently don't have, but we have quantum antivirus, <laughs> right? We have antivirus for something that doesn't exist. No, you don't have it. You, the people, don't have it. But, you know, they have quantum antivirus. We're building antivirus for quantum computing. But how are you building antivirus for quantum computing if, um, what is it? There is no quantum computing yet. Yeah, so that's just a discrepancy. We're just going to build an antivirus for something we may have in the future. See, the color revolution was important, the orange, because it was about Ukrainian elections. And that's something that I've admitted and have put forward 
in regards to how those elections were fixed. And then in 2019, like I said, having access to this Kraken, right? I, just so you guys know, the Kraken computer, right, has his fingers in everything. Your phone, your Pokemon Go games, your Nintendo DSs, your computers, your cameras, your TVs, your ring doorbells, and your car, <laughs> everything. So in that sense, when I noticed in 2018 that there was a lot of chatter about Mayor Rudy Giuliani being in Ukraine, asking questions, and then there was a hell of a lot of chatter going from the Ukrainian embassy and Yovanovitch playing gatekeeper to the DOJ. Yeah, so we're not going to let you guys communicate with the DOJ because we got to clear it first and we're not going to let you do that. And then fast forward a couple months later in Munich, Biden's there and all of these EU officials and whatnot. And they're like, he has to run because he needs to be the face of it. Because if anything happens and he drops, we can slot in Kamala. But what we need to do is make sure we have the right person in office in Ukraine. Yeah, you know, we should just put that guy that played, you know, the president in TV. He's young and he'll do what we want. He's an actor, you know, CAA, that agency we don't talk about. Creative Artist Agency. So, you know, Biden was like, all right, then Obama will be fine with it. And Biden didn't even throw his hat in the race till after the 2019 elections, which, by the way, for some reason, a few secretary of states joined the wife of the late devil himself, McCain, right? Cindy McCain. So John McCain's wife, right? Secretary of States joined her to go and observe an, a fixed election where this actor who wasn't a politician, who literally played a president on TV, became president in a landslide. Now, you would ask yourself, why would your Secretary of States of your state? It's like saying, oh, you know, the, the county of, uh, you know, the, the city of Milan's Secretary of State is going to observe elections in freaking Montana. Why? Oh, that's right. Because they needed to see how they alter the elections, which, by the way, were a landslide. And that's so weird because, right, your Secretary of State totally has 100% business going to another country to watch a fixed election with the devil's wife, right? On your tax dollars, oh, federal, state, whatever, and then convinces you that these machines are totally safe. When I'm telling you these are weapons of war that we created at the DOD, all right? And it was the original one was done by the Chinese. Uh, they sold it to us. Uh, they messed up. Uh, it wasn't as intricate as they wanted it to. So then we sold them to Venezuela. Then we told Chavez, don't worry, you'll be president forever. Just let us fine tune the algorithms. And then we just deployed new machines here. And then we had the Department of Justice literally sue states and counties that would not embrace the electronic machines. Because <laughs> that sounds totally legit. Yeah, you better take those machines, but we like hand counting and these lever pulls because we can actually see our vote. Yeah, you're not allowed to do that. We're doing it all electronic. Why? So we can collect the data. <sighs> Duh. So that way we don't even have to campaign. We already know how they're going to vote. 
And if they don't vote for us, we'll just throw them in some place or blacklist the crap out of them. You know, that's how they work. So now, um, please hop off um, and come on to Rumble. We're going to watch um, <laughs> um, a nice clip of Chris Silza, who, by the way, his last real article, he published it in 2009 in January, where he was upset that Obama had put the boots Concrete boots. That's what he said on transparency because five minutes into taking office, he signed his first fucking executive order that, you know, Perkins Coy, Robert Bauer, right, who was his White House counsel and partner at Perkins Coy, who were commingling funds to pay for this Russia stuff and to get assets in place and, you know, make sure nobody gets a DNC server. Ha, how'd that work out? Um, you know, signed it and said, yeah, presidential thing sealed. And now while we're involved with Roe versus Wade and the war on religion and an indictment pending, which is something that we could have avoided if nobody embraced this inbred prostitute for the GOP, right? NARA is now privatizing presidential archives. So we've just given them the right to alter history as they want. <laughs> so normal. So, okay, July is going to be hot as shit. And it's all going to start because, you know, CERN's going to push that button. A mullet. Apparently that's a thing that the kids do now. I feel so old. During his run for the Republican presidential nomination in 2016, Donald Trump had one surefire way to beat back doubts about his conservative bona fides. He would talk about who he might appoint, if given the chance, to the Supreme Court. In May 2016, following questions raised by Texas Senator Ted Cruz about whether Trump was actually a conservative, Trump released a list of 11 names that he would consider appointing to fill the seat of the late Justice Antonin Scalia, who had passed away that February. Said Trump of Scalia and his list, quote, the following list of potential Supreme Court justices is representative of the kind of constitutional principles I value, and as president, I plan to use this list as a guide to nominate our next United States Supreme Court justices. End quote. Trump's gambit largely worked. The list of judges was extremely well received by conservatives. The air went out of Cruz's balloon, and within a month or so, it was clear that Trump would be the Republican nominee for president. In September, of that same year, 2016, as polls showed him lagging somewhat, Trump added 10 more potential names to the court to his list, including Neil Gorsuch. In his final debate with Hillary Clinton in the 2016 general election, Trump said this. The Supreme Court, it's what it's all about. Our country is so, so, it's just so imperative that we have the right justices. The justices that I'm going to appoint will be pro-life. They will have a conservative bent. At another point in that same debate, asked point blank whether he wanted to see Roe v. Wade overturned, Trump said this. Well, if we put another two or perhaps three justices on, that's really what's going to be, that will happen. Four years later, in September 2020, having appointed both Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh to fill, fill seats in the Supreme Court, Trump employed that same strategy that had worked so well to rally conservatives to him four years earlier. He released a list of 20 potential nominees if another opening arose during his second term. Arkansas Republican Senator Tom Cotton, who was one of the names on that list, said he was quote-unquote honored to be mentioned and tweeted this. It's time for Roe v. Wade to go. 
Just nine days after Trump released his 2020 list, liberal justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. Eight days after that, Trump, in the heat of an election season, nominated conservative judge Amy Coney Barrett to replace Ginsburg. Quote, a judge must apply the law as written, Barrett said in accepting the nomination, adding, judges are not policymakers, end quote. A month later, and just one week before the 2020 election, the Senate confirmed Barrett by a 52 to 48 margin. In so doing, they established a dominant six to three conservative majority on the Supreme Court. Now, given all of that, it's not an exaggeration to say that without his promises on the court, it's possible that Trump never makes it to the White House and certainly never gets the chance to appoint three justices who fundamentally reshape the ideological composition of the bench. And without Trump doing that, the overturning of Roe v. Wade after five decades likely never happens. What can be said without question is that the Roe decision will be the defining legacy of Trump's four years in office and will likely be at the heart of his appeal to conservatives if or really when he runs for president again in 2024. In a statement in the wake of the Roe decision, Trump took credit for the Supreme Court's ruling on Roe. Quote, today's decision, which is the biggest win for life in a generation, along with other decisions that have been announced recently, were only made possible because I delivered everything as promised, including nominating and getting three highly respected and strong constitutionalists confirmed to the United States Supreme Court said Trump, adding, it was my great honor to do so. That Trump will go down in history as the president who put the judicial pieces in place to overturn Roe is decidedly ironic. As recently as 1999, Trump told Tim Russert on NBC's Meet the Press this. I hate the concept of abortion. I hate it. I hate everything it stands for. I cringe when I listen to people debating the subject. That's why we love you. believe in choice. Trump eventually changed that position as he told the Christian Broadcasting Network in 2011. I'm pro-life, but I changed my view a number of years ago. And one of the reasons I changed, one of the primary reasons, a friend of mine, his wife was pregnant, in this case married, and she was pregnant. And he was going to, they were going to, he, he didn't really want the baby. Mm. And he was telling me the story. He was crying as he's telling me. He ends up having the baby, and the baby is the apple of his eye. He said it's the greatest thing that's ever happened to him. With the court's decision, the first paragraph of every history book dealing with Donald Trump will include the Roe ruling without question. And that is the point. We make new point episodes every Tuesday and Thursday. Check them all out. You know, I feel bad for people like that, that, you know, play on words because what the Supreme Court justices said was important. It was important because, uh, you know, they aren't supposed to be making laws and they couldn't make a law and it was never a constitutional right. Like we've said that there's no right that you can commit murder. There's no right that, you know, you can be a slut, right? There are things that I can, you know, um, understand when uh, people are contemplating abortion, like, uh, you know, the baby's going to be in pain, you know, the brain's on the outside of the body, you know, stuff like that, or they were raped still, you know, if you were raped and you conceived, wow, that child has just forcefully come into this realm. <laughs> Why not? But it's up to the person what their strengths and capabilities are. 
But just because you're a slut and, oh, I've had like 10 abortions and it's totally cool. You know, when you hear them shrieking, uh, you know, it's like, see, something like abortion is something that you discuss with your doctor, right? You don't go to a clinic where they start selling off the fetal parts. And, you know, these hemovores, they need a lot. But whatever. Whatever. That's all I have to say is whatever. Um, so as you could see on your screen right now, we're seeing the, um, new testifying. Oh, this is like smashing information and da, 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 da. Remember, I already said how this is going to play out if you were paying attention and you're going to see it yourself. It seems quite interesting. What is this? Who are these people sitting there posing? I can't see that far. Smashing testimony. I wonder. Hmm. I'm like, I'm very interested to see what kind of, oh, look at them with their masks. They feel super safe, don't they? They could probably smell each other's perfume. You smell great, but we're protected. <laughs> so great. I'm like a hundred duple. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. But they look super safe in their masks, right? How many? One, two, three. I wonder what channel they work for. Ooh, what's going on? You know, while we wait for that, it's um, quite important. You know, I don't know if we should like start it. Let's see if they're saying that they're starting now. It's supposed to start in a minute because I wanted to show you what the former FBI director uh, had to say. You know, Andy McCabe, the guy that lost his pension, the loser, right? That guy, how they took uh, John Eastman's phone and Jeffrey Clark was raided and how important this is. And, um, you know, that's something that you sh we should watch, but uh, we'll do that during their break when they have to take a break for 10 minutes, you know, just to pee, talk shit. Um, it really, it really gets to me when I look at Liz Cheney thinking about her dad. <sighs> it really gets to me how this, uh, you know, they're not all blatantly related, but it's kind of nepotism, like in the club type thing. It's a GOP DNC thing. You know what I mean? But oh, what's going on here? Looks like a really packed room, right? Lots of journalists sitting down. Some have masks feeling really safe. Others don't. I wonder, right? How much money will Ollie make after his hearing? You know, it's really funny. He complied with a grand jury subpoena, testified for eight hours in front of uh, this uh, select committee. And then he went back and testified and then has to testify again. It's so weird. So weird. So bizarre. Do they know that they're on camera, the photographers? I wonder if they do. But, you know, when they take him, you know, this is where it shows. You know, you had everyone... Talk smack. If people paid attention to the attacks all you did, you'd probably get to know me a little bit better if you didn't. Because um, he knows. They all know. Voldemort. What was it about Voldemort that nobody said their name? Because <laughs> their God doesn't like stuff like that. Right? Right? It's almost like Voldemort, like I said. Election theft. We just figured out the machines are not certified. Exclusive. Buck you off. That's not exclusive. That shit's in my declaration. But Voldemort. And then this 
tech guy comes out and say, oh, you know, the machines aren't certified. Let's make a documentary about me. I figured it out in 2021. Right? Yeah. Yep. Here we go. Let's see what they have to tell us today. The select committee to investigate the January 6th attack on a United States Capitol will be in order. Without objection, the chair is authorized to declare the committee in recess at any point. Pursuant to House Deposition Authority Regulation 10, the chair announces the committee's approval to release the deposition material presented during this hearing. Good afternoon. In our hearings over the previous weeks, the select committee has laid out the details of a multi-part pressure campaign driven by the former president aimed at overturning the results of the 2020 presidential election and blocking the transfer of power. We've shown that this effort was based on a lie, a lie that the election was stolen, tainted by widespread fraud, Donald Trump's big lie. In the weeks ahead, the committee will hold additional hearings about how Donald Trump summoned a mob of his supporters to Washington, spurred them to march on the Capitol, and failed to take meaningful action to quell the violence as it was unfolding on January 6th. However, in recent days, the select committee has obtained new information dealing with what was going on in the White House on January 6th and in the days prior. Specific detailed information about what the former president and his top aides were doing and saying in those critical hours. First-hand details of what transpired in the office of the White House Chief of Staff just steps from the Oval Office as the threats of violence became clear and indeed violence ultimately descended on the Capitol in the attack on American democracy. It's, an important, it's important that the American people hear that information immediately. That's why in consultation with the vice chair, I've recalled the committee for today's hearing. As you've seen and heard in our earlier hearings, the select committee has developed a massive body of evidence thanks to the many hundreds of witnesses who have voluntarily provided information relevant to our investigation. It hasn't always been easy to get that information because the same people who drove the former president's pressure campaign to overturn the election are now trying to cover up the truth about January 6th. But thanks to the courage of certain individuals, the truth won't be buried. The American people won't be left in the dark. Our witness today, Ms. Cassie Hutchinson, has embodied that courage. I won't get into a lot of detail about Ms. Hutchinson's testimony will show. I'll allow her words to speak for themselves. And I hope everyone at home will listen very closely. First, I'll recognize our distinguished vice chair, Ms. Cheney of Wyoming, for any opening statements she'd care to offer. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. In our first five hearings, the committee has heard from a significant number of Republicans including former Trump administration Justice Department officials, Trump campaign officials, several members of President Trump's White House staff, a prominent conservative judge, and several others. Today's witness, Ms. Cassidy Hutchinson, is another Republican and another former member of President Trump's White House staff. Certain of us in the House of Representatives 
recall that Ms. Hutchinson once worked for House Republican Whip Steve Scalise, but she is also a familiar face on Capitol Hill because she held a prominent role in the White House Legislative Affairs Office and later was the principal aide to President Trump's Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows. Ms. Hutchinson has spent considerable time up here on Capitol Hill representing the Trump administration, and we welcome her back. Up until now, our hearings have each been organized to address specific elements of President Trump's plan to overturn the 2020 election. Today, we are departing somewhat from that model because Ms. Hutchinson's testimony touches on several important and cross-cutting topics, topics that are relevant to each of our future hearings. In her role working for the White House Chief of Staff, Ms. Hutchinson handled a vast number of sensitive issues, she worked in the West Wing, several steps down the hall from the Oval Office. Ms. Hutchinson spoke daily with members of Congress, with high-ranking officials in the administration, with senior White House staff, including Mr. Meadows, with White House counsel, lawyers, and with Mr. Tony Ornato, who served as the White House Deputy Chief of Staff. She also worked on a daily basis with members of the Secret Service who were posted in the White House. In short, Ms. Hutchinson was in a position to know a great deal about the happenings in the Trump White House. Ms. Hutchinson has already sat for four videotaped interviews with committee investigators, and we thank her very much for her cooperation and for her courage. We will cover certain, but not all relevant topics within Ms. Hutchinson's knowledge today. Again, our future hearings will supply greater detail, putting the testimony today in a broader and more complete context. Today, you will hear Ms. Hutchinson relate certain firsthand observations of President Trump's conduct on January 6th. You will also hear new information regarding the actions and statements of Mr. Trump's senior advisors that day, including his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, and his White House counsel. And we will begin to examine evidence bearing on what President Trump and members of the White House staff knew about the prospect for violence on January 6th even before that violence began. To best communicate the information the committee has gathered, we will follow the practice of our recent hearings, playing videotaped testimony from Ms. Hutchinson and others, and also posing questions to Ms. Hutchinson live. Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Thank you very much. Our witness today is Ms. Cassie Hutchinson, who served in the Trump administration in the White House Office of Legislative Affairs from 2019 to 2020, and as a special assistant to the president in the White House Chief of Staff's office from March 2020 through January 2021. I will now swear in our witness. The witness will please stand and raise her right hand. Do you swear or affirm on the penalty of perjury that the testimony you're about to give is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you, God. Thank you. You may be seated. Let the record reflect the witness answered in the affirmative. I now recognize myself for questions. Ms. Hutchinson, I'd like to start with a few questions about your background. The, the, these are some photographs we've obtained highlighting your career. These show you with members of Congress, including Steve Scalise, as well as the White House with leader Kevin McCarthy and Jim Jordan. Others show you with the president and members of Congress aboard Air Force One. 
Before you worked in the White House, you worked on Capitol Hill for Representative Steve Scalise, the Republican whip, and Senator Ted Cruz. And then in 2019, you moved to the White House and served there until the end of the Trump administration in 2020. When you started at the White House, you served at, in the Office of Legislative Affairs. We understand that you were initially hired as a staff assistant, but were soon promoted to a position of greater responsibility. Can you explain your role for the committee? When I moved over to the White House Chief of Staff's office with Mr. Meadows when he became the fourth Chief of Staff, it's difficult to describe a typical day. Um, I was a special assistant to the president and an advisor, advisor to the Chief of Staff. The days depended on what the president was doing that day, and that's kind of how my portfolio was reflected. I had a lot of outreach with members of Congress, senior cabinet, cabinet officials, we would work, I would work on policy issues with relevant internal components and members on the Hill, as well as security protocol at the White House complex for Mr. Meadows and the president. And then you, were, you received another promotion in March 2020. At that time, you became the principal aide to the new White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows. Is that right? That's correct, sir. What did a typical day look like for you in your work? with Mr. Meadows? It varied with what was going on. We spent a lot of time on the Hill. I spent time on the Hill independently too, as I was his liaison for Capitol Hill. Um, we did a lot of presidential travel engagements, but mostly I was there to serve what the chief of staff needed. And a lot of times what the chief of staff needed was a reflection of what the president's schedule is detailed to do that day. So is it fair to say that you spoke regularly in your position, both with members of Congress and with senior members of the Trump administration? That's correct. That's a fair assessment, sir. And would you say that in your work with Mr. Meadows, you are typically in contact with him and others in the White House throughout the day? That's correct, sir. Mr. Meadows and I were in contact almost pretty much throughout every day um, consistently. Although so much of grave importance happens in the West Wing of the White House, it's a quite a small building. Uh, above me on the screen, you can see a map of the first floor of the West Wing of the White House. On the right, you can see the president's Oval Office. On the left, the chief of staff's office suite. Within the Chief of Staff's office suite is the heart of the West Wing, was your desk, which was between the Vice President's office, Ms. Kirshner's office, and the Oval Office. Ms. Hutchinson, is this an accurate depiction of where you were located? It's accurate. It's lot, yeah, lot, she lot was geographically close. Absolutely. Proximity. Uh, Ms. Hutchinson, this is a photo that shows the short distance between your office Oval Office. Get the fuck out of here. Are you kidding? It five to ten seconds or so to walk down the hall from your office to the Oval Office. Is that right? That's correct. Thank you. Pursuant to the Section 5C8 of House Resolution 503, the chair recognizes gentleman from Wyoming, Ms. Cheney, for questions.
Wait a minute. So proximity, I guess the janitor will be fruitful too. What the heck? They should pull in the Iranian florist that they have and ask her about all the bugs she placed. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman, we uh, will begin today with an exchange that first provided Ms. Hutchinson a tangible sense of the ongoing planning for the events of January 6th. On January 2nd, four days before the attack on our Capitol, President Trump's lead lawyer, Mr. Giuliani, was meeting with White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and others. Ms. Hutchinson, do you remember Mr. Giuliani meeting with Mr. Meadows on January 2nd, 2021? I do. He met with Mr. Meadows in the evening of January 2nd, 2021. And we understand that you walked Mr. Giuliani out of the White House that night. Um, and he talks to you about January 6th. What do you remember him saying? As Mr. Giuliani and I were walking to his vehicles that evening, he looked at me and said something to the effect of, Cass, are you excited for the 6th? It's going to be a great day. I remember looking at him and saying, Rudy, could you explain what's, what's happening on the 6th? Uh, he, he had responded something to the effect of, we're going to the Capitol. It's going to be great. President's going to be there. He's going to look powerful. He's, he's going to be with the members. He's going to be with the senators. Talk to the chief about it. Talk to the chief about it. He knows about it. And did you go back uh, then up to the West Wing and tell Mr. Meadows about your conversation with Mr. Giuliani? I did. After Mr. Giuliani had left the campus that evening, I went back up to our office and I found Mr. Meadows in his office on the couch. He was scrolling through his phone. I remember leaning against the doorway and saying, the conversation is... Rudy, Mark, sounds like we're going to go to the Capitol. He didn't look up from his phone and said something to the effect of, there's a lot going on, Cass, but I don't know. Things might get real, real bad on January 6th. Uh, Ms. Hutchinson, Mr. Meadows is engaged in litigation with the committee to try to avoid testifying here. Um, what, what was your reaction when he said to you things might get real, real bad? In the days before January 2nd, I was apprehensive about the 6th. I had heard general plans for a rally. Uh, I had heard tentative movements to potentially go to the Capitol. But when hearing Rudy's take on January 6th and then Mark's response, that was the first, that evening was the first moment that I remember feeling scared and nervous for what could happen on January 6th. And I had a deeper concern for what was happening with the planning aspects of it. Thank you, Ms. Hutchinson. Today, we're going to be focusing primarily on the events of January 5th and 6th at the White House. Uh, but to begin and to frame the discussion, I want to uh, talk about a conversation that you had with Mr. John Ratcliffe the Director of National Intelligence, and uh, you had this conversation in December of 2020. Mr. Ratcliffe was nominated by President Trump uh, to oversee U.S. intelligence, uh, our U.S. intelligence community, uh, and before his appointment, Mr. Ratcliffe was a Republican member of Congress. As you will see on this clip, Director Ratcliffe's comments in December of 2020 were prescient. My understanding was Mr. Rat Director Ratcliffe didn't want much to do with the post-election period. Director Ratcliffe felt that it wasn't something that the White House should be pursuing 
it felt it was dangerous for the president's legacy. He had expressed to me that he was concerned that it could spiral out of control and potentially be dangerous either in, for our democracy or the way that things were going for the six. When you say it wasn't something the way it has to be pursued, what's the it? Trying to fight the results of the election, fighting missing ballots, pressuring, filing lawsuits in certain states where there didn't seem to be significant evidence and reaching out to state legislatures about that. So pretty much the way that the White House was handling the post-election period, he felt that there could be dangerous repercussions in terms of precedent set for elections, for our democracy, for the six. You know, he was hoping that we would concede. So Ms. Hutchinson, uh, now we're going to turn to certain information that was available before January 4th and what the Trump administration and the president knew about the potential for violence before January 6th. On the screen, you will see an email received by Acting Deputy Attorney General Donahue on January 4th from the National Security Division of the Department of Justice. Mr. Donahue testified in our hearings last week the email identifies apparent planning by those coming to Washington on January 6th to, quote, occupy federal buildings and discussions of, quote, invading the Capitol building. Here's what Mr. Donahue said to us. And we knew that if you have tens of thousands of very ups upset people showing up in Washington, D.C., that there was potential for violence. The U.S. Secret Service was looking uh, at similar information and watching the planned demonstrations. In fact, their intelligence division sent several emails to White House personnel, like Deputy Chief of Staff Tony Ornato and the head of the President's Protective Detail, Robert Engel, including certain materials listing events like those on the screen. The White House continued to receive updates about planned demonstrations, including information regarding the Proud Boys organizing and planning to attend events on January 6th. Although Ms. Hutchinson has no detailed knowledge of any planning involving the Proud Boys for January 6th, she did note this. I recall hearing the word Oath Keeper and hearing the word Proud Boys closer to the planning of the January 6th rally when Mr. Giuliani would be around. On January 3rd, the Capitol Police issued a special event assessment. In that document, the Capitol Police noted that the Proud Boys and other groups planned to be in Washington, D.C. on January 6th and indicated that, quote, unlike previous post-election protests, the targets of the pro-Trump supporters are not necessarily the counter-protesters as they were previously, but rather Congress itself is the target on the 6th. Of course, we all know now that the Proud Boys showed up on January 6th marched from the Washington Monument to the Capitol that day and led the riotous mob to invade and occupy our Capitol. Ms. Hutchinson, I wanna play you a clip of one of our meetings when you described a call on January 4th that you received from National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien on the same topic, potential violence on January 6th. I received a call from Robert O'Brien, the National Security Advisor, he had asked if he could speak with Mr. Meadows about potential violent words of violence that he was hearing that were 
potentially going to happen on the Hill on January 6th. I had asked if he had connected with Tony Ornato because Tony Ornato had a conversation with him, with Mark about that topic. Robert had said, I'll, I'll talk to Tony. And then um, you know, I don't know if Robert ever connected with Mark about the issue. Ms. Hutchinson, can you describe for us Mr. Ornato's responsibilities as Deputy Chief of Staff? The Deputy Chief of Staff position at the White House for operations is arguably one of the most important positions that somebody can hold. They're in charge of all security protocol for the campus and all pre presidential protectees, primarily the president and the first family, but anything that requires security for any individual that has uh, presidential protection, so the chief of staff or the um, national security advisor, as well as the vice president's team too. Tony would oversee all of that, and he was the conduit for security protocol between White House staff and the United States Secret Service. Thank you. And you also described a brief meeting between Mr. Ornato and Mr. Meadows on the potential for violence. Uh, the meeting was on January 4th. They were talking about the potential for violence on January 6th. Let's listen to a clip of that testimony. I remember Mr. Ornato had talked to him about intelligence reports. I remember Mr. Ornato coming in and saying that we had intel reports saying that there could potentially be violence on the, on the 6th. You also told us about reports of violence and weapons that the Secret Service were receiving on the night of January 5th and throughout the day on January 6th. Is that correct? That's correct. There are reports that police in Washington, D.C. had arrested several people with firearms or ammunition following a separate pro-Trump rally in Freedom Plaza on the evening of January 5th. Are those some of the reports that you recall hearing about? They are. Of course, the world now knows that the people who attacked the Capitol on January 6th had many different types of weapons. When a president speaks, the Secret Service typically requires those attending to pass through metal detectors, known as magnetometers, or MAGs for short. The Select Committee has learned that people who willingly entered the enclosed area for President Trump's speech were screened so they could attend the rally at the Ellipse. They had weapons and other items that were confiscated. Pepper spray, knives, brass knuckles, tasers, body armor, gas masks, batons, blunt weapons. And those were just from the people who chose to go through the security for the president's event on the ellipse. Not the several thousand members of the crowd who refused to go through the mags and watched from the lawn near the Washington Monument. The Select Committee has learned about reports from outside the magnetometers and has obtained police radio transmissions identifying individuals with firearms, including AR-15s, near the ellipse on the morning of January 6th. Let's listen. There's an individual in a tree, maybe a white male, about six feet tall, tin build, brown cowboy boots. He's got blue jeans and a blue jean jacket, and underneath the blue jean jacket, the complainants both saw a stock of an AR-15. He's going to be with a group of individuals, about five to eight, five to, uh, eight other individuals. Two of the individuals in that group at the base of the tree, near the port of potties were wearing green fatigues, green olive draft style fatigues, about five, eight, five, nine, skinny, uh, skinny white males, brown cowboy boots. They had Glock style pistols in their waistband. 
8736 with the message that subject um, weapon on his right hip. Today he's in the tree. Motor one, make sure PPD knows they have an elevated threat in the tree south side of Constitution Avenue. Look for the don't tread on me flag, American flag face mask, cowboy boots, weapon on the right, right side hip. I got three men walking down the street in fatigue while carrying AR 15s. Copy at 14th and Independence. AR 15s at 14th and Independence. As you saw in those emails, the first report that we showed, we now know was sent in the eight o'clock hour on January 6th. This talked about people in the crowd wearing ballistic helmets and body armor, carrying radio equipment and military grade backpacks. The second report we showed you on the screen was sent by the Secret Service in the 11 a.m. hour, and it addressed reports of a man with a rifle near the ellipse. Ms. Hutchinson, in prior testimony, you described for us a meeting in the White House around 10 a.m. in the morning of January 6th, involving Chief of Staff Meadows and Tony Ornato. Were you in that meeting? I was. Let's listen to your testimony about that meeting, and then we'll have some questions. I think the last time we talked, you mentioned that um, some of the weapons that people had at the rally included flagpoles, oversized um, sticks or flagpoles, uh, bear spray. Is there anything else that you recall hearing about that um, the, the people who would gather on the ellipse had? I recall Tony and I having a conversation with Mark probably around 10 a.m., 10, 15 a.m., where I remember Tony mentioning knives, guns in the form of pistols and rifles, um, bear spray, body armor, spears, and flagpoles. Spears were one item, flagpoles were one item, and then Tony had relayed to me something to the effect of, and these effing people are fastening spears onto the ends of flagpoles. Ms. Hutchinson, here's a clip of your testimony regarding Mr. Meadows' response to learning that the rally attendees were armed that day. What was Mark's reaction, Mr. Meadows' reaction to this list of weapons that people had in the crowd? When Tony and I went in to talk to Mark that morning, Mark was sitting on his couch and on his phone, which was something typical. And I remember Tony just got right into it. I was like, sorry, I just want to let you know and informed him, like, this is how many people we have outside the mags right now. These are the weapons that we're known to have. It's possible he listed more weapons off that I just don't recall. Um, and gave him a brief but and concise explanation, but also fairly, fairly thorough. And I remember distinctly Mark not looking up from his phone. And I, I remember Tony finishing his explanation and it taking a few seconds for Mark to say something to the point where I almost said, Mark, did you hear him? Um, and then Mark chimed in and was like, all right, anything else? Still looking down at his phone. And Tony looked at me and I looked at Tony and I, Tony said, no, sir, do you have any questions? It's like, what are you hearing? And I looked at Tony and I was like, sir, he just told you about what was happening down at the rallies, and he was like, yeah, yeah, I know. And then he looked up and said, have you talked to the president? And Tony said, yes, sir, he's aware too. And he said, all right, good. He asked Tony if Tony had informed the president. Yes. And Tony said, yes, he had. 
So, Ms. Hutchinson, is it your understanding that Mr. Ornato told the president about weapons at the rally on the morning of January 6th? That's what Mr. Ornato relayed to me. And here's how you characterize Mr. Meadows' general response when people raised concerns about what could happen on January 6th. So at the time in the days leading up to the 6th, there were lots of public reports about how things might go bad on the 6th, even the potential for violence. If I'm hearing you correctly, what stands out to you is that Mr. Meadows did not share those concerns, or at least did not act on those concerns. Did not act on those concerns would be accurate. But other people raise them to, to him, like in this exchange, you mentioned that Mr. Arnado pulled him aside. That's correct. Ms. Hutchinson, we're going to show now an exchange of texts between you and Deputy Chief of Staff Ornato. Um, and these text messages uh, were uh, exchanged while you were at the ellipse. Um, in one text, uh, you write, but the crowd looks good from this vantage point as long as we get the shot. He was effing furious. And the text messages also stress that President Trump kept mentioning the OTR and off the record movement. We're going to come back and ask you about that in a minute. But could you tell us, first of all, who it is in the text who was furious? The he in that text that I was referring to was the president. And uh, why was he furious, Ms. Hutchinson? He was furious because he wanted the arena that we had on the ellipse to be maxed out at capacity for uh, all attendees. The advance team had relayed to him that the mags were free-flowing. Everybody who wanted to come in had already come in, but he still was angry about the extra space and wanted more people to come in. And did you go to the rally in the presidential motorcade? I, I was there, yes. In the and were you backstage uh, with the president and other members of his staff and family? I was. And you told us, Ms. Hutchinson, about particular comments that you heard while you were in the tent area. When we were in the offstage announce area tent behind the stage, he was very concerned about the shot, meaning the photograph that we would get because the rally space wasn't full. Um, one of the reasons, which I've previously stated, was because he wanted it to be full and for people to not feel excluded because they'd come far to watch him at the rally. Um, and he felt the mags were at fault for not letting everybody in. But another leading reason, and likely the primary reason, is because he wanted it full and he was angry that we weren't letting people through the mags with weapons, what the Secret Service deemed as weapons in our our weapons. But when we were in the offstage announced tent, I was part of a conversation. I was in the I was in the vicinity of a conversation where I overheard the president say something to the effect of, you know, I, I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing mags away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. Let the people in. Take the effing mags away. Just to be clear, Ms. Hutchinson, is it your understanding that the president wanted to take the mags away and said that the armed individuals were not there to hurt him? That's a fair assessment. The issue wasn't with the amount of space available in the official rally area uh, only, but instead that people did not want to have to go through the mags. Let's listen to a portion of what you told us about that. 
in this particular instance, it wasn't the capacity of our space. It was the mags and the people that didn't want to come through. And that's what Tony had been trying to relate to him that morning. You know, it's not the issues that we encountered on the campaign. We have enough space or they don't want to come in right now. They they have weapons. They don't want confiscated by the Secret Service and they're fine on the mall. They can see you on the mall and they're, they want to march straight to the Capitol from the mall. The president apparently wanted all attendees inside the official rally space and repeatedly said, quote, they're not here to hurt me. And, and just to, to be clear, so um, he was told again in, in that conversation, or was he told again in that conversation that people couldn't come through the mags because they had weapons? Correct. And um, that people, and he, his response was to say they can march to the Capitol from, in, from the ellipse. Something to the effect of take the effing mags away. They're not here to hurt me. Let them in. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol after the rally's over. They can march from they can march from the ellipse. Take the effing mags away. Then they can march to the Capitol. Ms. Hutchinson, what we saw when those clips were playing were photos provided by the National Archives showing the president in the offstage tent before his speech on the ellipse. You were in some of those photos as well. And uh, I just want to confirm that that is when you heard the president say the people with weapons weren't there to hurt him and that he wanted the Secret Service to remove the magnetometers. That's correct. In the photos that you displayed, we were standing towards the front of the tent with the TVs really close to where he would walk out to go onto the stage. These conversations happened two to three minutes before he took the stage that morning. Let's reflect on that for a moment. President Trump was aware that a number of the individuals in the crowd had weapons and were wearing body armor. And here's what President Trump instructed the crowd to do. We're gonna walk down and I'll be there with you. We're gonna walk down. We're gonna walk down. Anyone you want, but I think right here, we're going to walk down to the Capitol. And the crowd, as we know, did proceed to the Capitol. It soon became apparent to the Secret Service, including the Secret Service teams in the crowd, along with White House staff, that security at the Capitol would not be sufficient. I had two or three phone conversations with Mr. Renato when we were at the Ellipse. And then I had four men on Mr. Meadows' detail with me in between those individuals and then a few other bodies on the ground just Secret Service doing advance. They were getting notifications through their radios. And Mr. Cordado in one phone conversation had called me and said, make sure the chief knows that they're, they're getting close to the Capitol. It's, um, having trouble stacking bodies. And Ms. Hutchinson, when you, you said they were having trouble stacking bodies, did you mean that law enforcement at the Capitol uh, needed more people to defend the Capitol from the rioters? It was becoming clear to us and to the Secret Service that Capitol Police officers were getting overrun at the security barricades outside of the Capitol building. And they were having short, they were short people to defend the building against the rioters. And uh, you mentioned that Mr. Ornato was conveying this to you because he wanted you to tell Mr. Meadows. Uh, so did you, did you tell Mr. Meadows uh, that people were getting closer to the Capitol 
and that Capitol Police was having difficulty? After I had the conversation with Mr. Meadows, Mr. After I had the conversation with Mr. Renato, I went to have the discussion with Mr. Meadows. He was in a secure vehicle at the time making a call. So when I had gone over to the car, I went to open the door to let him know, and he had immediately shut it. I don't know who he was speaking with. Um, it wasn't something that he regularly did, especially when I would go over to give him information. So I was a bit taken aback, but I didn't think much of it. And thinking that I was, would be able to have the conversation with him a few moments later. And were you able to have that conversation a few moments later? Probably about 20 to 25 minutes later. There was another period in between where he shut the door again. Um, and then when he finally got out of the vehicle, we had the conversation. But at that point, there was a backlog of information that he should have been made aware of. And so you opened the door to the control car and Mr. Meadows pulled it shut? That's correct. And he did that two times? That's correct. And when you finally were able to give Mr. Meadows the information um, about the violence at the Capitol, what was his reaction? He almost had a lack of reaction. I remember him saying, all right, something to the effect of how much longer is, does the president have left in this speech? Again, uh, much of this information about the potential for violence um, was known or learned before the onset of the violence, early enough for President Trump to take steps to prevent it. He could, for example, have urged the crowd at the ellipse not to march to the Capitol. He could have condemned the violence immediately once it began, or he could have taken multiple other steps. But as we will see today and in later hearings, President Trump had something else in mind. One other question at this point, Ms. Hutchinson, were you aware of concerns that White House counsel Pat Cipollone or Eric Hirschman had about the language President Trump used in his ellipse speech? There were many discussions the morning of the 6th about the rhetoric of the speech that day. In my conversations with Mr. Hirschman, he had relayed that we would be foolish to include language that had been included at the president's request, which headlines along to the effect of fight for Trump, we're gonna to march to the Capitol, I'll be there with you, fight for me, fight for what we're doing, fight for the movement, um, things about the vice president at the time too. Both Mr. Hirschman and White House Counsel's Office were urging the speechwriters to not include that language for legal concerns and also for the op optics of what it, could portray the president wanting to do that day. And we just heard the president say that he would be with his supporters as they marched to the Capitol, even though uh, he did not end up going, he certainly wanted to. Um, some have questioned whether President Trump genuinely planned to come here to the Capitol on January 6th. In his book, Mark Meadows falsely wrote that after President Trump gave his speech on January 6th, he told Mr. Meadows that he was, quote, speeding meta speaking metaphorically about the walk to the Capitol. As you will see, Donald Trump was not speaking metaphorically. As we heard earlier, Rudy Giuliani told Ms. Hutchinson that Mr. Trump plans to travel to the Capitol on January 6th. I want to pause for just a moment uh, to ask you, Ms. Hutchinson, to explain some of the terminology you will hear today. We've heard you use two different terms to describe plans for the president's movement to the Capitol or anywhere else. 
One of those is a scheduled movement and another one is OTR. Could you describe for us what each of those mean? A scheduled presidential movement is on his official schedule. It's notified to the press and to a wide range of staff that will be traveling with him. It's known to the public, known to the Secret Service, and they're able to coordinate the movement days in advance. An off-the-record movement is confined to the knowledge of a very, very small group of advisors and staff. Typically, a very small group of staff would travel with him, mostly that are just included in the national security package. You can pull an off-the-record off movement together in less than an hour. Um, it's a way to kind of circumvent having to release it to the press, if that's the goal of it, or to not have to have as many security parameters put in place ahead of time to make the movement happen. Thank you. And let's turn back now to the president's plans to travel to the Capitol on January 6th. We know that White House counsel Pat Cipollone was concerned about the legal implications of such a trip. And he agreed with the Secret Service that it shouldn't happen. Ms. Hutchinson, did you have any conversations with Pat Cipollone about his concerns about the president going to the Capitol on January 6th? On January 3rd, Mr. Cipollone had approached me knowing that Mark had raised the prospect of going up to the Capitol on January 6th. Mr. Cipollone and I had a brief private conversation where he said to me, we need to make sure that this doesn't happen. This would be a legally a, a terrible idea for us. We're, we have serious legal concerns if we go up to the Capitol that day. And he then urged me to continue relaying that to Mr. Meadows because it's my understanding that Mr. Cipollone thought that Mr. Meadows was indeed pushing this along with the president. And we understand, Ms. Hutchinson, that you also spoke to Mr. Cipollone on the morning of the 6th as you were about to go to the rally on the ellipse. And Mr. Cipollone said something to you like, make sure the movement to the Capitol does not happen. Is that correct? That's correct. I saw Mr. Cipollone right before I walked out onto West Exec that morning. And Mr. Cipollone said something to the effect of, please make sure we don't go up to the Capitol, Cassidy. Keep in touch with me. We're going to get charged with every crime imaginable if we make that movement happen. And do you remember which crimes Mr. Cipollone was concerned with? In the days leading up to the 6th, we had conversations about potentially obstructing justice or defrauding the electoral count. Let's hear uh, about some of those concerns uh, that you mentioned earlier uh, in one of your interviews with us. Having a private conversation with Pat late in the afternoon of the 3rd or the 4th, um, that Pat was concerned it would look like we were obstructing justice or obstructing the electoral college count. And I, I apologize for probably not being uh, <laughs> very firm with my legal terms here, but um, that it would look like we were obstructing what was happening on Capitol Hill. And he was also worried that it would look like we were inciting a riot or encouraging a riot to erupt on the Capitol, at the Capitol. In fact, in the days before January 6th and on January 6th itself, President Trump expressed to multiple White House aides that he wanted to go to the Capitol after his speech. 
Here's what various White House aides have told the committee about the president's desire to go to the Capitol. Did the president tell you this, that he wanted to speak at the Capitol? Correct, yes. During the meeting in the dining room, did the, the idea of the president um, proceeding or walking to the Capitol on the 6th after his speech come up? Walking to the Capitol? No. Driving to the Capitol? It came up. Okay, how did it come up and what was discussed? You brought it up. You said, I want to go down to the Capitol. What about him marching to the Capitol on the 6th? Um, yes. Tell us about that. So this is kind of a general thing. I mean, to get into the specifics of it, I, I was aware of the desire of the president to potentially, uh, march to the, or, or accompany the, um, rally attendees to the Capitol. When did you first hear about this idea of the president? accompanying rally attendees to the Capitol on the 6th. Well, this was at the 6th. This was during the, um, after he finished his remarks. When the president said that he would be going to the Capitol during his speech on the ellipse, the Secret Service scrambled to find a way for him to go. We know this from witnesses and the Secret Service, also from messages among staff on the president's National Security Council. The NSC staff were monitoring the situation in real time, and you can see how the situation evolved in the following chat log that the committee has obtained. As you can see, NSC staff believed that Mogul, the president, was, quote, going to the Capitol, and, quote, they are finding the best route now. From these chats, we also know the staff learned of the attack on the Capitol in real time. When President Trump left the ellipse stage at 1.10, the staff knew that rioters had invaded the inaugural stage and Capitol Police were calling for all available officers to respond. When Republican leader Kevin McCarthy heard the president say he was going to the Capitol, he called you, Ms. Hutchinson. Isn't that right? That's correct. And in this text message, you told Tony Ornato, quote, McCarthy just called me too. And do you guys think you're coming to my office? Tell us about the call that day with Leader McCarthy during the president's speech on the ellipse. I was still in the tent behind the stage. And when you're behind the stage, you can't really hear what's going on in front of you. So when Mr. McCarthy called me with this information, I answered the call and he sounded rushed, but also frustrated and angry at me. And I, I was confused because I, I didn't know what the president had just said. Um, he then explained, the president just said he's marching to the Capitol. You told me this whole week, you aren't coming up here. Why would you lie to me? I said, I'm, I'm not lying. I, I wasn't lying to you, sir. I, we're not going to the Capitol. And he said, well, he just said it on stage, Cassidy, figure it out. Don't come up here. I said, I'll, I'll, I'll run the traps on this and I'll, I'll shoot you a text. I, I can assure you we're not coming up to the Capitol. We've already made that decision. He pressed a little bit more, believing me, but I think frustrated that the president had said that. And we ended the phone conversation after that. I called Mr. Renato to reconfirm that we weren't going to the Capitol. 
and which is also in our text messages. I sent Mr. McCarthy another text telling him the affirmative that we were not going up to the Capitol, and he didn't respond after that. And we understand, Ms. Hutchinson, that the plans for the president to come up to the Capitol um, had included discussions at some point about uh, what the president would do when he came up to the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, let's look at a clip of one of your interviews discussing that issue with the committee. When you were talking about a scheduled movement, did um, anyone say what the president wanted to do when he got here? No. Not that I can specifically remember. I remember, I remember hearing a few different ideas discussed with between the Mark and Scott Perry, Mark and Rudy Giuliani. I don't know which conversations were elevated to the president. I don't know what he personally wanted to do when he went up to the Capitol that day. Um, you know, I, I know that there were discussions about him having another speech outside of the Capitol before going in. I know that there was a conversation about him going into the House chamber at one point. As we've all just heard in the days leading up to January 6th, on the day of the speech, both before and during and after the rally speech, President Trump was pushing his staff to arrange for him come up here to the Capitol during the electoral vote count. Let's turn now to what happened in the president's vehicle when the Secret Service told him he would not be going to the Capitol after his speech. First, here is the president's motorcade leaving the ellipse after his speech on January 6th. Ms. Hutchinson, when you returned to the White House in the motorcade after the president's speech, where did you go? When I returned to the White House, I walked upstairs towards the chief of staff's office, and I noticed Mr. Renato lingering outside of the office. Once we had made eye contact, he quickly waved me to go into his office, which was just across the hall from mine. When I went in, he shut the door, and I noticed Bobby Angle, who is the head of Mr. Trump's security detail, sitting in a chair, just looking somewhat discombobulated and a little lost. Um, I looked at Tony, and he had said, did you effing hear what happened in the Beast? I said, no, Tony, I, I just got back. What happened? Tony proceeded to tell me that when the president got in the Beast, he was under the impression from Mr. Meadows that the off-the-record movement to the Capitol was still possible and likely to happen, but that Bobby had more information. So once the president had gotten into the vehicle with Bobby he thought that they were going up to the Capitol, and when Bobby had relayed to him, we're not, we don't have the assets to do it, it's not secure, we're going back to the West Wing. The president had very strong, a very angry response to that. Um, Tony described him as being irate. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president, take me up to the Capitol now. To which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel and 
Mr. when Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles. And was Mr. Engel in the room as Mr. Ornato told you this story? He was. Did Mr. Engel correct or disagree with any part of the story from Mr. Ornato? Mr. Engel did not correct or disagree with any part of the story. Did Mr. Engel or Mr. Ornato ever after that tell you that what Mr. Ornato had just said was untrue? Neither Mr. Ornato nor Mr. Engel told me ever that it was untrue. And despite this altercation, this physical altercation, during the ride back to the White House, President Trump still demanded to go to the Capitol. Here's what Kaylee McEnany, the White House press secretary at the time, wrote in her personal notes and told the committee about President Trump's desire to go to the Capitol after returning to the White House. When you wrote POTUS wanted to walk to the Capitol, was that based solely on what the president said during his speech or anything that he or anybody else said afterwards? So to the best of my recollection, I believe when we got back to the White House, he said he wanted to physically walk with the marchers. And according to my notes, he then said uh, he'd be fine with just riding the beats. But to the best of my recollection, he wanted to be a part of the march in some fashion. Okay. And just... For the record, the beast refers to the presidential limousine? Yes. President Trump did not go to the Capitol that day. We understand that he blamed Mark Meadows for that. So prior to leaving the rally site, when he got off the stage and everybody was making the movement back to the motorcade, I had overheard Mr. Meadows say to him then, as I had prior to Mr. Trump taking the stage that morning, um, that he was still working on getting an off-the-record movement to the Capitol. So when Mr. Trump took the stage, he was under the impression via Mr. Meadows that it was still possible. So when he got off the stage, I had relayed to Mr. Meadows that I had another conversation with Tony. The movement was still not possible. Mr. Meadows said, okay. And then as they proceeded to go to the motorcade, um, and Mr. Meadows had reiterated we're going to work on it. So I talked to Bobby. Bobby has more information. Mark got into his vehicle, to my understanding. Trump got into the beast. And after we had all arrived back at the White House, later in the day, it had been relayed to me via Mark that the president wasn't happy, that Bobby didn't pull it off for him, and that Mark didn't work hard enough to get the movement on the books. The physical altercation that Ms. Hutchinson described in the presidential vehicle was not the first time that the president had become very angry about issues relating to the election. On December 1, 2020, Attorney General Barr said in an interview that the Department of Justice had not found evidence of widespread election fraud sufficient to change the outcome of the election. Ms. Hutchinson, how did the president react to hearing that news? Around the time that I understand the AP article went live, I remember hearing noise coming from down the hallway, so I poked my head out of the office. And I saw the valet walking towards our office. He had said, get the chief down to the dining room. The president wants him. So Mark went down to the dining room and came back to the office a few minutes later. After Mark had returned, I left the office and went down to the dining room, 
and I noticed that the door was propped open and the valet was inside the dining room changing the tablecloth off of the dining room table. He motioned for me to come in and then pointed towards the front of the room near the fireplace mantle and the TV where I first noticed there was ketchup dripping down the wall and there's a shattered porcelain plate on the floor. The valet had articulated that the president was extremely angry at the attorney general's AP interview and had thrown his lunch against the wall, um, which was causing them to have to clean up. So I, I grabbed a towel and started wiping the ketchup off of the wall to help the valet out. Um, and he said something to the effect of, he's really ticked off about this. I would stay clear of him for right now. He, he's really, really ticked off about this right now. And Ms. Hutchinson, was this the only instance that you are aware of where the president threw dishes? It's not. And are there other instances in the dining room that you recall where he expressed his anger? There were, there were several times throughout my tenure with the chief of staff that I was aware of him either throwing dishes or flipping the tablecloth um, to let all the contents of the table go onto the floor and likely break or go everywhere. And Ms. Hutchinson, Attorney General Barr described to the committee the president's angry reaction when he finally met with President Trump. Let's listen. And uh, I said, look, I, I uh, know that you're dissatisfied with me and I'm glad to offer my resignation. And he pounded the table very hard. Everyone sort of jumped and he said, accept it. Mr. Chairman, I reserve. Jim Woman reserves. The chair requests those in the hearing room to remain seated until the Capitol Police have escorted our witness from the room. Pursuant to the order of the committee of today, the chair declares the committee in recess for a period of approximately 10 minutes. Oh, dear. You're not allowed to be upset, apparently, because then that makes you a threat. See, this is uh, this aligns with the bullshit that we were hearing. See, I have on video with Ali Akbar talking to someone on the phone, saying then to Alex Jones, oh, he's coming. No, he's not coming. The person that was going to be great was Vice President Pence, not President Trump. People were earwigging. You could go down there. It'll be amazing. It'll be this. You'll be able to stand there. People were earwigging him. But I'll tell you what. He just threw dishes. Shit. I would have See, this is why I don't, you know, I say it. I would suck at being in federal government because I would totally be the dishes shut up but you know what they want to do this is where the indictment comes you get where it goes it's hearsay oh, those red flag laws how awesome are they guys you see this is it <laughs> this is it you're not allowed to have righteous indignation when for four years you have a global conspiracy lying and making up shit you're not allowed to be upset now if he threw the plates, I'd be like, yo, I would have joined him. If he would have busted stuff up, I would have joined him. Oh, he banged the table and said, your resignation is approved. Yeah, 
Bill, you were carrying around a handgun because you were worried about yourself. You saw how that turned out for your father. You did all those dirty dealings with Noriega. You know exactly under what stress he was. And you know what? Women like that and responses like that, they're like, oh, you know, um, all, all proper, right? Oh, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're very unhappy with me. He should have said, I fucked up. I, I can't do this. I'm pussying out because I can't fix this. That's what he should have said. Now, oh, you might want to hear my resignation, right? Somebody tells me that shit in my face, right? I'll be like, the fuck you did. That's where you get more irate. That's how they irritate you more, right? They irritate you more if they sit there and they're just like, oh, yeah. So I know that I haven't completed the duties that you asked me for. And you look at them and you both know that they fucked up. You both know that they're chicken shit, right? You both know it, but they're using formal verbiage to kind of, you know, decrease the situation. It's like when your kid, you know, starts pulling shit off the shelf in in a supermarket and starts bouncing on meat packets, right? (laughs) I've seen that shit happen. And you get two types of mom. The one mom that'll freaking grab her kid and be like, what did you do? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. And then the other mom like this bitch and how Bill Barr explained it, that gets down on her knees. Use your words, honey. And then the kid spits in her face, punches her, you know, and does whatever. In this case, they just fucked him over. You see, you don't bend your knee and come down to their level. Use your words, honey. You don't need to be tearing the supermarket apart, right? (laughs) So when it comes to narratives, this is fantastic. We can't get him on the insurrection. So what we're going to do, we're going to paint a picture of someone so terrible. Maybe we should all start talking about what happened in the Obama White House. We've had rape, children raped, threesomes. Chrissy Teigen said it. <laughs> Should we go back to the Clintons, right? So now they just want to make him look like he's irate. Uh, you know what? Guess what? If all of what she said is true, I'm like, so? <laughs> so? I, if they said everything that this chick said is true, I would be like, so? I'd be pissed too. (laughs) I'd be like, so, but this is all manufactured. Well, the majority of it is actually inflated and blown up out of proportion. But you know, (laughs) if he did all that, I'd be like, so, so man makes you wonder, right? Makes you freaking wonder. See, this is why they don't want people, uh, you know, know, what if they had Millie, Gavin, me, or Patrick Byrne testify? They don't want us in there. One, Patrick Byrne was a federal asset for a very, very long time. Very, very long time. And he would probably say things they don't want to hear. Definitely me. (laughs) They don't want that because then they'd ask me a question. I'll be like, oh, so that's a problem. But Obama having kids in the Oval Office with friends, not a big problem. All right. I get that. Cool. Millie and Gavin would totally say everything too. This is all this. See, this is why it's selective of who they've interviewed. Because we all know that, for example, I know this for a fact. My name has been brought up 
a lot through people that have been testifying. Yet for some reason, I've been excluded because why? She's a loose cannon. She's going to say something we don't want on the record. She may bring evidence. Oh, shit. What if she brings like the hard drive with all the passport data? She's going to ambush us. You see, that's the problem. We can't have Patrick Byrne. He's going to talk about snow globe. We can't have that on the record. They could say whatever they want in the public. They can't bring that shit in here. So, what we're seeing right now is their attempt to maneuver and find a way to do whatever. So basically what everyone should be saying is like, damn, all he threw was plates. Damn. All he did was slam his fist. Shit. I would have wrecked that place. I would have wrecked it. I would have taken everything and thrown it everywhere. Be like, this is ridiculous. Who made these statements? Why did they say this? Like, what the hell? So Bill Barr goes and says all these things. Then he comes, he's like, yeah, uh, so I'm sure you're not happy with the way that I work. So you can accept my resignation. It's like, bitch, we're supposed to be on the same side, bitch. We're supposed to be working on the same shit. You come in here with your tail between your legs, giving me some, you know, neutered speech that's neutral. Fine. (laughs) Accepted. Like, come on, come on, come on. And the fact that they say he's a hothead makes me love him even more. I'm just saying. Barr is a pussy. He would pack with him. Ask anyone who actually knows. You know. Ask anyone who knows. Ask anyone who knows. This is the guy that fucking dealt with Noriega, locked him up, and fucking did all this coke dealing for the Clintons. He could have fucking locked him away. Because he has the people behind, but it's okay. We still got people. We still have things to do. Now, as far as Miss Hutchinson, I just want to tell you that when you're being interviewed and you're touching your fingers or moving them around like that, uh, it's usually that you're you have very low confidence in what you're saying and you're stressed. And she looks like a libtard, the one that bends down and says, use your words, honey. The one that, you know, you call customer service and you're like, why the fuck do I have this charge? And they're like, don't use that language with me. I'm offended. And it's like, are you serious? You're in customer service. Like, why are you doing this to me? Right. Why are you telling me that I need to tone it down? Do you, would you like me to say, hi, it's a beautiful day. Love you. But, All this money is missing from my account. Would you be so kind to help me? Get the fuck out of here. So we have Miss Hutchinson. Like, who hired her? Wrong, wrong persona for that job. Wrong persona for that job. It's like when you put, you know, people that have asses made of glass in customer service. Wrong person for the job. Because for her, me telling her, hey, you did a shitty ass job. She'd probably be at HR being like, Tori offended me. And she made she made the environment hostile because she told me that I didn't do my fucking job. Right. She's, she's glass, ass of glass. So it's very easy to pick those out because they all want a job. You should just go see where she's working now. Maybe we should check our bank accounts. (laughs) Maybe not directly. Maybe her parents, maybe a boyfriend, husband, you know, some endowment. You know, that's how they usually go. You know, sometimes I wonder when I see these people testifying, not just this chick, but in general, 
and just people in general. I think I even said it yesterday when, you know, we all got together and kind of dispelled bullshit because we hadn't come together to just dispel bullshit on stereo. But, you know, you kind of wonder like, damn, it would be fucked up to be your kid. It would be really fucked up to be your kid. To know that you do shit like that, like Adam Schiff, like his kids looking at the baby things, his buddy, you know, going to jail for raping people, setting up explosions, violating the law, supersonic hearing, making falsities, falsifying information. Like, well, I, I just, you know, I, and I think about it and I'm like, damn, I really feel bad for their children. I mean, are they even their kids? But, you know, Adam and his wife, Eve. Believe it or not. Yeah, that's his wife's name is Eve, <laughs> the devil himself. Watermelon Y, Watermelon X. It makes you wonder, you know, what it's like to be their kids and people that are, you know, related to them, knowing that they're hammering down their own country for profit. You know, when Ed Buck was arrested and I did those pieces um, about the video footage that they obtained. It's um, it's going to be interesting. Let's just see the next portion of this. It's going to be, I believe, quite interesting because they came up with a potato because this is what they had. They're like, oh, we're going to make it seem like he's like insane. And then we're going to get people to complain that he's aggressive. So we're just going to open the door and just, you know, we've got people in the White House that are hand, you know, holdovers. Maybe we can get them to say something. Right. We'll get them to say something anything like Roe versus Wade. John Eastman now revealing that federal agents seized his phone as they investigate his role in efforts to try to overturn the 2020 presidential election here in the United States. Our congressional correspondent Ryan Nobles is joining us from Capitol Hill. So Ryan, tell our viewers what you're learning. Yeah, that's right, Wolf. Uh, This uh, marks uh, an increase in the Department of Justice investigation into the former President Donald Trump and his allies' efforts to overturn the election results. By uh, They uh, are investigating John Eastman, the conservative lawyer who was at the center of that effort to try and pressure the former Vice President Mike Pence to stand in the way of the certification of the election results. Now, Eastman is claiming in a court filing that a group of federal investigators from the Inspector General's Office of the Justice Department and the FBI stopped him as he was leaving a restaurant with his wife and a friend. They searched him and then asked for access to his phone. They were able to seize the phone, and that means the information that was on that phone is part of their investigation. Now, Eastman believes that that seizure was illegal. He's complaining about it. That's how we learned of this through a court filing. Now, Wolf, this information about the Department of Justice's interest in Eastman comes as the January 6th Select Committee, which has had a heavy focus on Eastman, has announced plans for a surprise hearing that is scheduled to take place tomorrow. You'll remember that last week, the committee had said that they were going to take a break in their hearing schedule and not pick up again until the middle of July. Well, that all changed this afternoon when they announced that they had a witness that they wanted to bring out to the public uh, to share information about what they know about the investigation. At this point, Wolf, we do not know who that witness is, but the fact that the committee is rushing to bring this out into the light of day suggests that the information is significant. Wolf, is there a sense, Ryan, that this newly obtained evidence by the select committee could be time sensitive? 
It certainly seems to have all the markings of that wolf. As we said before, uh, the committee had plans to take a step back. Uh, They were collecting new information that had come in as a result of their first round of hearings. They weren't planning to have anything uh, additionally be done in public until the middle of July. Uh, And most of the members had left town. Uh, The July 4th recess is now in effect uh, for members of Congress. So there was no reason for them to be in Washington. We're now told that these members are making their way back to Washington, D.C. to be a part of this surprise. What many might even describe as an emergency hearing, it it makes it seem as though the information that they want to deliver in tomorrow's hearing does have a degree of time sensitivity to it. It certainly does. It's pretty dramatic indeed. Ryan, I want you to stand by. I also want to bring in former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe. He's a CNN senior law enforcement analyst and CNN political analyst Maggie Haberman, the Washington correspondent for The New York Times. Uh, Andrew, uh, so these FBI agents, and you're a former FBI director, the FBI agents seized Eastman's phone as he was walking out of a restaurant, made him unlock it. What does that say to you about this investigation? Well, I mean, it, it's yet another signal that this investigation is well-developed and it's still in a very dynamic stage. So let's remember, Wolf, that in order to get a search warrant, which they had uh, to seize this phone, those agents had to first go to a federal judge and convince a federal judge that they had probable cause to believe that there was evidence of a crime on that phone. The execution of that warrant on Mr. Eastman as he left the restaurant is a little bit unconventional. But let's remember, the reason getting your hands on the phone is so important right now is because we know that Mr. Eastman and others involved in this conspiracy uh, utilized encrypted messaging platforms like Signal and WhatsApp and things like that. So the only way to get the content from those messages is to have an actual phone that the messages were sent to. So this could potentially give the prosecutors a great degree of visibility into Eastman's actual communications with other people who may have been involved in the conspiracy to overturn the election. Yeah, it's a very dramatic. It happened on the same day last Friday that a senior Justice Department official, Jeffrey Clark, his home was raided by the FBI as well. How significant, Maggie, is all these developments? Knowing Eastman, for example, was in direct contact with then-President Trump in, in these key moments around January 6th. Well, look, as Andrew said, you know, this is this is showing that there is an active investigation involved where it goes remains to be seen. But the fact that there was such an aggressive step taken to get hold of this device while, according to him, he was leaving a restaurant paints quite a scene uh, of a sense of urgency. Again, where it goes, whether the it stops here, how much of a focus they're putting on former President Trump. I don't think we're going to know that for a little bit of time, but it certainly makes clear that the Justice Department has an active, at least one active investigation going into events related to January 6th. Certainly does. You know, Andrew, this comes as the select committee suddenly today added a hearing tomorrow when originally they were supposed to be taking a break until next month. So what new evidence or testimony would warrant a sudden announcement like this? It's a great question. Monkeypox. Well, the answer for it. But I, I tell you what we, we do know. We know that the committees have been very focused on telling a story in a compelling and engrossing way. They've done that so far. We also know that they created a fair amount of momentum with their last hearing last Thursday about the pressure that the Trump administration exerted on the Justice Department. My guess, and it's purely a guess, is that rushing this uh, hearing onto the schedule now is indicates that what they're going to present tomorrow, either in the form of, uh, of a uh, 
evidence or witness testimony is relative to what they presented on Thursday, a continuation of that same story. It's like they want to keep that momentum going to kind of close out the story and its finality. So that makes you think that it could be a piece of evidence relative to what we heard last week or potentially a witness, someone who maybe was talked about at the hearing last week and now has changed their mind and decided to come in and be questioned. It's really hard to say, but I would say it's probably related directly to last week's testimony. could be very, very dramatic indeed. And you've done a lot of reporting on all of this, Maggie. Uh, Given the methodical way this committee, the select committee, has approached all this uh, so far, are you surprised they would announce a new hearing on such short notice? I think we all were surprised, uh, Wolf, that they were announcing this hearing in, in such a dramatic fashion. And I think it'll be obviously very interesting to see what they present tomorrow. There's one other piece of information that wasn't discussed just now that the committee got hold of last week, and that is these 11 or so hours of uh, film from a documentary filmmaker who was spending time around the Trump family and sometime around former President Trump himself in the immediate lead up to the election and then in that period afterwards. And they were looking at that uh, piece, they were looking at all of that film, looking at the interviews. There were three of them that the filmmaker Alex Holder did with former President Donald Trump and a number of interviews with some of his family members. So it it also could relate to that. There are a number of options. Uh, However, this has been a very dramatic buildup. And so it will be interesting to see what emerges. Yeah, it certainly will be. And we'll be watching every moment of that. You know, Ryan, does announcing a hearing on such short notice raise the stakes for the committee to actually deliver, you're up there on Capitol Hill. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt about that, Wolf. Uh, The way that this has gone down, especially when they made such a big deal about taking such a big break, raises the stakes for this hearing tomorrow. And they really do have to deliver because a big part of what this committee is trying to do uh, is win in the court of public opinion and also try and convince and put pressure on the Justice Department to take action with what they've uncovered in their investigation. And I do think part of this, Wolf, is that I think the committee, to a certain extent, has been surprised by the amount of new information that has been generated uh, by witnesses and other people who've been watching these hearings, and it's either jogged their memory or perhaps uh, convinced them that they need to be a part of this investigation and contribute what they know. So there's also a distinct possibility that what we see tomorrow is someone who has come forward after seeing what has already taken place in these hearings and saying, I have an important piece of information to add, and I want to be a part of this. Uh, Again, well, they're keeping such a tight lid on it. Uh, It is still very much a secret. We may not know until they gavel in tomorrow at one o'clock Eastern. I suspect we won't know until the hearing actually begins, but I could be wrong. Uh, Andrew, what do you make of this flurry of activity now coming from the U.S. Justice Department at the same time that the select committee is holding these public hearings? Is there anything to that timing? You know, Wolf, I actually think the timing is uh, was a bit of an unfortunate circumstance for DOJ because people are quite naturally try to link the two, the, the search warrant on uh, Jeffrey Clark's home. And of course, the now we know about the search warrant on Eastman's phone and it all happening right around the time of last week's hearing. It is more likely that they are just at that point in their investigation where they're ready to take some overt steps like s- executing search warrants, which at that point, the, the gig is up, right? The public knows that these people are under investigation, and that signals a very uh, profound turn in the investigation. Um, I think that timing probably just happened to coincide with last week's hearing, but, uh, you know, we'll never know. It's always sensitive to get a search warrant for a high-ranking former Justice Department official or for the president's uh, lawyer in this kind of matter. That's not an easy decision to make for the Justice Department. You know, I really hate this mute button. Or a lawyer. Uh, So what did we learn? Absolutely nothing. 
Oh no, did it start? It did again. Let's go back. We missed a couple minutes. Hold on. To speak with Roger Stone, associated. Oh, look at that. <laughs> the good stuff is coming now. They always keep it for the second part, don't they? For the sequels. Here we go. Committee will be in order. Chair recognizes the gentlewoman from Wyoming, Vice Chair Cheney. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Before we turn to what Ms. Hutchinson saw and heard in the White House during the violent attack on the Capitol on January 6th, let's discuss certain communications White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows had on January 5th. President Trump's associate, Roger Stone, attended rallies during the afternoon and the evening of January 5th in Washington, D.C. On January 5th and 6th, Mr. Stone was photographed with multiple members of the Oath Keepers who were allegedly serving as his security detail. As we now know, multiple members of that organization have been charged with or pled guilty to crimes associated with January 6th. Mr. Stone has invoked his Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination before this committee. General Michael Flynn has also taken the fifth before this committee. Mr. Stone previously had been convicted of other federal crimes unrelated to January 6th. General Flynn had pleaded guilty to a felony charge also predating and unrelated to January 6th. President Trump pardoned General Flynn just weeks after the presidential election. And in July of 2020, he commuted the sentence Roger Stone was to serve. The night before January 6th, President Trump instructed his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, to contact both Roger Stone and Michael Flynn regarding what would play out the next day. Ms. Hutchinson, is it your understanding that President Trump asked Mark Meadows to speak with Roger Stone and General Flynn on January 5th? That's correct. That is my understanding. And Ms. Hutchinson, is it your understanding that Mr. Meadows called Mr. Stone on the 5th? I'm under the impression that Mr. Meadows did complete both a call to Mr. Stone and General Flynn the evening of the 5th. And do you know what they talked about that evening, Ms. Hutchinson? I'm not sure. Is it your understanding that Mr. Giuliani, Mr. Eastman, and others had set up what has been called, quote, a war room at the Willard Hotel on the night of the 5th? I was aware of that the night of the 5th. And do you know if Mr. Meadows ever intended to go to the Willard Hotel on the night of the 5th? Mr. Meadows had a conversation with me where he wanted me to work with Secret Service on a movement from the White House to the Willard Hotel so he could attend the meeting or meetings with Mr. Giuliani and his associates in the war room. And what was your view as to whether or not Mr. Meadows should go to the Willard that night? I had made it clear to Mr. Meadows that I didn't believe it was a smart idea for him to go to the Willard Hotel that night. I wasn't sure everything that was going on at the Willard Hotel, although I knew enough about what Mr. Giuliani and his associates were pushing during this period. I didn't think that it was something appropriate for the White House Chief of Staff to attend or to consider involvement in. I made that clear to Mr. Meadows Throughout the afternoon, he mentioned a few more times going up to the Willard Hotel that evening and then eventually dropped the subject the night of the 5th and said that he would dial in instead. 
So General Flynn has uh, appeared before this committee. Uh, and when he appeared before our committee, he took the fifth. Let's briefly view a clip of General Mike Flynn taking the Fifth Amendment. Before we do that, let me get something clear. On the 10th floor, 10th floor, there was a room where people were meeting that was paid for by Cindy Chafin. The mayor, Mayor Rudy Giuliani, did not have that room where people would meet. I want to make that clear. I want to make it clear. I actually think that this bitch was actually there on the 10th floor on the 7th. I have to rewind and remember. But upstairs, and that's the one that when I flew out, I made sure to convey to Millie and Gavin to tell the mayor not to go up there. And I remember his security guard guy saying, well, he doesn't go up there uh, to me. And I was like, does he go upstairs? And he goes, no, he hasn't been up there. If anyone wants to talk to him, they go through us and we get the appointment and we see him. So I wanted to just make that clear because they're kind of meshing things around. Okay, here we go. Uh, General Flynn, do you believe the violence on January 6th was justified? Do we have a Yes. All right, we're back. Congressman Cheney, could you repeat the question, please? Yes. General Flynn, do you believe the violence on January 6th was justified? Is that, can I get a clarification? Is that a moral question or are you asking I'm asking both. I said I, I said that. Do you believe the violence on January 6th was justified morally? Take the fifth. You believe the violence on January 6th was justified legally? Fifth. General Flynn, do you believe in the peaceful transition of power in the United States of America? The fifth. Let's move on now to January 6th and the conduct of Donald Trump and Mark Meadows during the attack on the Capitol. Ms. Hutchinson, I'd like now for us to listen to a description, your description of what transpired in the West Wing during the attack. For context, in this clip, you describe the time frame starting at about 2 p.m. So I remember Mark being alone in his office for uh, quite some time, and you know, I, I know we've spoken about Ben Williamson going in at one point, and I, I don't personally remember Ben going in. I don't doubt that he had gone in. Um, but I remember him being alone in his office for most of the afternoon, around 2 o'clock to 2.05. Around 2 o'clock to 2.05, you know, we were watching the TV, and I could see that the rioters were getting closer and closer to the Capitol. Mark still hadn't popped out of his office or said anything about it. So that's when I went into his office. I saw that he was sitting on his couch on his cell phone. Same as the morning where he was just kind of scrolling and typing. Um, I said, hey, are you watching the TV, Chief? His TV was small. and I, You can see it, but I, I didn't know if he was really paying attention. I said, are you watching the TV, Chief? And he was like, yeah. Said, the writers are getting really close. Have you talked to the president? And he said, no, he wants to be alone right now. Still looking at his phone. So I started to get frustrated because, you know, I sort of felt like I was watching a, is this 
not a great comparison, but a bad car accident that was about to happen where you can't stop it, but you want to be able to do something. And I just remember, I remember thinking in that moment, Mark needs to snap out of this and I don't know how to snap him out of this, but he, he needs to care. And I just remember I blurted out, I said, Mark, do you know where Jim's at right now? And he looked up at me at that point and said, Jim? I said, Mark, is, he was on the floor a little while ago giving a floor speech. Did you listen? He said, yeah, it was, it was real good. Did you like it? And I said, yeah. Do you know where he's at right now? He said, no, I haven't heard from him. And I said, you might want to check in with him, Mark. And I remember pointing at the TV and I said, the riders are getting close. They might get in. And he looked at me and said something to the effect of, all right, I'll, I'll give him a call. Not long after the rioters broke into the Capitol, you described what happened with White House counsel Pat Cipollone. No more than a minute, minute and a half later, I see Pat Cipollone barreling down the hallway towards our office and rushed right in, looked at me, said, is Mark in his office? And I said, yes. He just looked at me and started shaking his head and went over, opened Mark's office door stood there with the door propped open and said something to the Mark is still sitting on his phone. I remember like glancing at him, he's still sitting on his phone. And I remember Pat saying to him something to the effect of the riders have gotten to the Capitol, Mark. We need to go down and see the president now. And Mark looked up at him and said, he doesn't want to do anything, Pat. And Pat said something to the effect of, and very clearly <laughs> had said this to Mark, something to the effect of, Mark, something needs to be done or people are going to die and the blood's going to be on your effing hands. This is getting out of control. I'm going down there. And at that point, Mark stood up from his couch, both of his phones in his hand. He had his glasses on still. He walked out with Pat. He put both of his phones on my desk and said, let me know if Jim calls. And they walked out and went down to the dining room. A few minutes later, Representative Jordan called back. A couple minutes later, so likely around between 2.15 and 2.25. I know the tweet went out at 2.24. I don't remember if I was there when the tweet went out or if it happened right afterwards. But Jim had called. I answered the phone, said one second. He knew it was, I guess he knew it was, and I introduced myself, but I'd, I don't remember if he called my cell phone or if he had called one of Mark's. Um, but I answered the phone and said, one sec, Mark's on the hall. I'm going to go hand the phone to him. He said, okay. So I went down. I asked the valet if Mark was in the dining room. The valet said yes. I opened the door to the dining room, briefly stepped in to get Mark's attention, showed him the phone, like flipped the phone his way so he could see it said Jim Jordan. He had stepped to where I was standing there holding the door open took the phone talking to Jim with the door still propped open. So I took a few steps back. So I probably was two feet from Mark. He was standing in the doorway going to the Oval Office dining room. They had a brief conversation and in the crossfires, you know, I heard briefly like what they were talking about, but in the background, I had heard conversations in the Oval dining room at, the po at that point, talking about the hang Mike Pence chance. That clip ended, Ms. Hutchinson, with you recalling that you heard the president, Mr. Meadows, and the White House counsel discussing the hang Mike Pence chants. 
And then you described for us what happened next. It wasn't until Mark hung up the phone, handed it back to me. I went back to my desk. A couple minutes later, him and Pat came back, possibly Eric Hirschman too. I'm pretty sure Eric Hirschman was there, but I'm, I'm confident it was Pat that was there. Um, I remember Pat saying something to the effect of, Mark, we need to do something more. They're literally calling for the vice president to be effing hung. And Mark had responded something to the effect of, you heard him, Pat. He thinks Mike deserves it. He doesn't think they're doing anything wrong. To which Pat said something, this is effing crazy. We need to be doing something more. Briefly stepped into Mark's office. And when Mark had said something, when Mark had said something to the effect of he doesn't think they're doing anything wrong, knowing what I had heard briefly in the dining room, coupled with Pat discussing the hang Mike Pence chance in the lobby of our office, and then Mark's response, I understood there to be the rioters in the Capitol that were chanting for the vice president to be hung. Let me pause here on this point. The rioters chanted, hang Mike Pence. The president of the United States, Donald Trump, said that, quote, Mike deserves it, and that those rioters were not doing anything wrong. This is a sentiment that he has expressed at other times as well. In an interview with ABC News correspondent Jonathan Carl, President Trump was asked about the supporters chanting, hang Mike Pence, last year. Instead of condemning them, the former president defended them. Because it's, it's common sense, John, it's common sense that you're supposed to protect. How can you, if you know a vote is fraudulent, right? Yeah. How can you pass on a fraudulent vote to Congress? President Trump's view that the rioters were not doing anything wrong and that, quote, Mike deserved it helps us to understand why the president did not ask the rioters to leave the Capitol for multiple hours. In fact, he put this tweet out at 2.24 p.m. Ms. Hutchinson, do you recall seeing this tweet in which the president said the vice president did not have the courage to do what needed to be done? I do. Ms. Hutchinson, what was your reaction when you saw this tweet? As a staffer that works to always represent the administration the best of my ability and to showcase the good things that he had done for the country. I remember feeling frustrated, disappointed, and really, it, it felt personal. I, it was really sad. As an American, I was disgusted. It was unpatriotic. It was un-American. We were watching the Capitol building get defaced over a lie. And it was something that was really hard in that moment to digest, knowing what I had been hearing down the hall in the conversations that were happening, seeing that tweet come up and knowing what was happening on the Hill. And it's something that I, it's still, I still struggled to work through the emotions of that. Ms. Hutchinson, we have also spoken to multiple other White House staff about their reaction to Donald Trump's 224 tweet, condemning Mike Pence for not having the courage 
to refuse to count electoral votes, an act that would have been illegal. Matthew Pottinger, a former Marine intelligence officer who served in the White House for four years, including as Deputy National Security Advisor, was in the vicinity of the Oval Office at various points throughout the day. When he saw that tweet, he immediately decided to resign his position. Let's watch him describe his reaction to the president's tweet. Uh, one of my staff brought me a printout uh, of a uh, tweet uh, by the president. And the tweet uh, said something to the effect that uh, Mike Pence, the vice president, didn't have the courage um, to, uh, to, to do what he what should have been done. Um, I uh, I read that tweet uh, and uh, made a decision at that moment to resign. Uh, that's where I knew that I was leaving that day uh, once I read that tweet. Ultimately, members of the White House staff, Sarah Matthews, cabinet members, Secretary Chow and Secretary DeVos resigned as well. Here is Secretary DeVos's resignation letter. As you can see, in resigning on January 6th, Secretary DeVos said to the president, quote, there's no mistaking the impact your rhetoric had on the situation, and it is the inflection point for me. Let's also look at Secretary Chow's resignation statement. When Secretary Chow resigned, she spoke of the January 6th attack, and she said, quote, as I am sure is the case with many of you, this has deeply troubled me in a way I simply cannot set aside. Ms. Hutchinson, in our prior interviews, we've asked you about what the president's advisors were urging him to do during the attack. You've described roughly three different camps of thought inside the White House that day. Can you tell us about those? There was a group of individuals that were strongly urging him to take immediate and swift action. I would classify the White House Counsel's Office, Mr. Hirschman, Ms. Ivanka Trump, in that category of really working to get him to take action and pleading with him to take action. There was a more neutral group where advisors were trying to toe the line knowing that Mr. Trump didn't necessarily want to take immediate action and condemn the riots, um, but knowing something needed to be done. Um, and then there was the last group, which was deflect and blame. Let's blame Antifa. These aren't our people. It's my understanding that Mr. Meadows was in the deflect and blame category, but he did end up taking a more neutral route, knowing that there were several advisors in the president's circle urging him to take more action, um, which I think was reflected in the rhetoric released later that day in the videos. You told us that the White House Counsel's Office was in the camp encouraging the president to tell the rioters to stop the attack and to leave the Capitol. Let's listen. White House Counsel's Office wanted there to be a strong statement out to condemn the rioters. I'm confident in that. Now let's look at just one example of what some senior advisors to the president were urging. Ms. Hutchinson, could you look at the exhibit that we're showing on the screen now? Have you seen this note before? 
That's a note that I wrote at the direction of the Chief of Staff on January 6th, likely around 3 o'clock. And it's written on a Chief of Staff note card, but that's your handwriting, Ms. Hutchinson? That's my handwriting. And why did you write this note? The Chief of Staff was in a meeting with Eric Hirschman and potentially Mr. Philbin, and they had rushed out of the office fairly quickly. Mark had handed me the note card with one of his pens and started dictating a statement for the president to potentially put out. And, no, I'm sorry, go ahead. That's no, okay. Uh, there are two phrases on there, one illegal and then one without proper authority. The illegal phrase was the one that Mr. Meadows had dictated to me. Mr. Hirschman had chimed in and said, also put without legal authority. There should have been a slash between the two phrases. It was an, an or if the president had opted to put one of those statements out. Evidently, he didn't. Later that afternoon, Mark came back from the Oval Dining Room and put the palm card on my desk with illegally crossed out, but said we didn't need to take further action on that statement. So um, to your knowledge, this statement was never issued? It was, to my knowledge, it was never issued. And Ms. Hutchinson, did you understand that Ivanka Trump wanted her father to send people home? That's my understanding, yes. Let's play a clip of you addressing that issue. I remember her saying at various points, you know, she wants him, she wanted her dad to send them home. She wanted her dad to tell them to go home peacefully. And she wanted to include language that he necessarily wasn't on board with at the time. You will hear more about this at our later hearings, but we have evidence of many others imploring Donald Trump and Mark Meadows to take action. Here is some of that evidence, text messages sent to Mark Meadows during the attack. This is a text message at 2.32 from Laura Ingram. Hey Mark, the president needs to tell people in the Capitol to go home. In the next message, this is hurting all of us. And then he's destroying his legacy and playing into every stereotype. We lose all credibility against the BLM Antifa crowd if things go south. The president's son, Don Jr., also urgently contacted Mark Meadows. At 2.53, he wrote, he's got to condemn this shit ASAP. The Capitol Police tweet is not enough. As you will see, these are just two of the numerous examples of Trump supporters and allies urging the president to tell his supporters to leave the Capitol. It would not have been hard for the president to simply walk down to the briefing room a few feet down the hall from the Oval Office. As Nora O'Donnell noted during an interview with House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy, where Leader McCarthy said he believed the attack was un-American. I wanna quickly bring in Kevin McCarthy, the House Minority Leader. Um, Leader McCarthy, do you condemn this violence? I completely condemn the violence in the Capitol. What we're currently watching unfold is un-American. I am, I am disappointed. I'm sad. This is not what our country should look like. This is not who we are. This is not the First Amendment. This has to stop, and this has to stop now. Leader McCarthy, the President of the United States has a briefing room, steps from the Oval Office. It is, the cameras are hot 24-7, as you know. Why hasn't he walked down and said that now? 
Republican House member Mike Gallagher also implored. Let's pause this for a second. So you saw just how many people were out there, right? Let's take a look at the, the amount of people out there. Now, if this was nefarious and we wanted to cause trouble or burn shit down, there was nothing that could have stopped it. Absolutely nothing. People were outside protesting, kind of like the bonus group in the early, you know, previous century. So again, if this was intended to be violent, this shit would have burned down real quick. Let's be honest. Look at the sheer amount of people there. There were there was at least a million people on the ground I know. So could they have burned it to the ground? Yes. Was that the intention? No. Because if it was the intention, they could have had as many guns as they wanted. Let's pretend they emptied all the rounds on the people. It would still would have went down. So let's just be straightforward in calling a spade a spade. If all these people wanted to burn it down, if all these people were violent, then it would have been violent. Let's just, you know, call that out the way it is. So let's continue. This, uh, so he's on the phone. Oh. Mr. Mr. President, President, you, you have, have got, got to, to stop, stop this. You are the only person who can call this off. Call it off. The election is over. Call it off. This is bigger than you. It's bigger than any member of Congress. It is about the United States of America, which is more important than any politician. Call it off. It's over. Despite the fact that many people close to Donald Trump were urging him to send people home, he did not do so until later, much later. At 4.17 p.m., Donald Trump finally told the rioters to go home and that he loved them. Here's a portion of the video President Trump recorded from the White House. We have to have peace. So go home. We love you. You're very special. You've seen what happens. You see the way others are treated that are so bad and so evil. I know how you feel. But go home and go home in peace. But as we will show in even greater detail in future hearings, Donald Trump was reluctant to put this message out, and he still could not bring himself to condemn the attack. Ms. Hutchinson has told us that, too. One that he put out at 417. Yeah. Um, I'm sure we've discussed it, and just to elaborate if I hadn't already at that point, I recall him being reluctant to film the video on the 6th. I was not involved in any of the logistics or the planning for that video. I just remember seeing the video go out and feeling a little shocked after it went out. On the evening of January 6th and the day after, the president's family and his senior staff and others tried to encourage the president to condemn the violence and commit to the peaceful transition of power. 
At 3.31 p.m. on January 6th, Sean Hannity of Fox News texted Mark Meadows. Mr. Hannity said, quote, can he make a statement? I saw the tweet. Ask people to leave the Capitol. Later that evening, Mr. Hannity sent another text message to Mark Meadows. This time, he shared a link to a tweet. That tweet reported that President Trump's cabinet secretaries were considering invoking the 25th Amendment to remove President Trump from office. As you can see on the screen, the 25th Amendment to the Constitution creates a process for the transition of power if a president is unfit or unable to serve. 25th Amendment has never been used to remove a president. But the committee has learned that after the attack on the U.S. Capitol, this was being discussed by members of President Trump's cabinet as a way of stripping the full power of the presidency from Donald Trump. President Trump's supporters were worried. In addition to the tweet that he sent Mark Meadows after the attack, Sean Hannity apparently spoke with President Trump and warned him about what could happen. We understand that this text message that Sean Hannity sent to Kaylee McEnany on January 7th shows what Mr. Hannity said to the president. First, no more stolen election talk. Second, impeachment and 25th Amendment are real. Many people will quit. Ms. Hutchinson, you told us that you were hearing about discussions related to the 25th Amendment. Here's part of what you said. Mr. Pompeo reached out to have the conversation with Mr. Meadows in case he hadn't heard the discussions amongst the cabinet secretaries. And from what I understand, it was more of a, this is what I'm hearing. I want you to be aware of it. But I also think it's worth putting on your radar because you are the chief of staff. You're technically the boss of all the cabinet secretaries. And, you know, if, if conversations progress, you should be ready to take action on this. Like, I'm concerned for you and your positioning with this. Yeah. Reach out to me if you have any questions or, like, I could be helpful with you at all. Inside the White House, the president's advisors, including members of his family, wanted him to deliver a speech to the country. Deputy White House Counsel Pat Philbin prepared the first draft of what would be the president's remarks on national healing, delivered by a pre-taped video on January 7th. When he arrived at the White House on the 7th, Mr. Philbin believed that more needed to be said, so he sat down and started writing. He shared the draft with Pat Cipollone, who also believed the president needed to say more. Mr. Cipollone agreed with the content as did Eric Hirschman, who reviewed the draft. The committee has learned that the president did not agree with the substance as drafted and resisted giving a speech at all. Ms. Hutchinson, do you recall discussions about the president's speech on January 7th? I do. Let's listen, Ms. Hutchinson, to what you told us about that and about the process of crafting those remarks. Uh, I learned from a conversation with Mark and overhearing between him and White House counsel and um, Eric Hirschman as well, that Trump didn't necessarily think he needed to do anything more on the 7th than what he had already done on the 6th. When he was 
convinced to put out a video on the 7th. He, I understand that he had a lot of opinions about what the context of that announcement were to entail. Um, I had original drafts of the speech where you know, there were several lines that didn't make it in there about prosecuting the rioters or calling them violent. He didn't want that in there. He wanted to put in there that he wanted to potentially pardon them. Um, and this is just with the increased emphasis of his mindset at the time, which was he didn't think that they did anything wrong. He, the people who did something wrong that day, or the person who did something wrong that day was Mike Pence by not standing with him. But the president's advisors urged him to give the speech. Who convinced him to do the video on the 7th? I'm not sure who convinced him or if it was a group of people that convinced him. Who was in the group that you're aware of? That I'm aware of. Mark, Ivanka, Jared Kushner, um, Eric Hirschman, Pat Cipollone, Pat Philbin. Those are the people that I'm aware of. Do you know why that group of people thought it was necessary for him to release a statement? believe Kelly McEnany as well. Um, from what I understood at the time and from what the reports were coming in, there's a large concern of the 25th Amendment potentially being invoked and there were concerns about what would happen in the Senate if it was, if the 25th was invoked. So the primary reason that I had heard other than, you know, we did not do enough on the six. We need to get a stronger message out there and condemn this. this. Otherwise, this will be your legacy. The secondary reason to that was think about what might happen in the final 15 days of your presidency if we don't do this. There's already talks about invoking the 25th Amendment. You need this as cover. The president ultimately delivered the remarks. Unlike many of his other speeches, he did not ad lib much. He recited them without significant alteration, except one. Even then, on January 7th, 2021, the day after the attack on the U.S. Capitol, the president still could not bring himself to say, quote, but this election is now over. One other point about the speech, Ms. Hutchinson. Did you hear that Mr. Trump at one point wanted to add language about pardoning those who took part in the January 6th riot? I did hear that, and I understand that Mr. Me that Mr. Meadows was encouraging that language as well. Thank you. And here's what you told us previously about that. You said he was instructed not to include it. Who was instructing him not to include language about the pardon in that January 7th? I understood from White House Counsel's office coming into our office that morning that they didn't think that it was a good idea to include that in the speech. That being Pat Cipollone? That's correct. And Eric Hirschman. Ms. Hutchinson. Did Rudy Giuliani ever suggest that he was interested in receiving a presidential pardon related to January 6th? He did. Ms. Hutchison, did White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows ever indicate that he was interested in receiving a presidential pardon related to January 6th? Mr. Meadows did seek that pardon. Yes, ma'am. Thank you, Ms. Hutchison. Mr. Chairman, I yield back. I want to thank our witness for joining us today. The members of the select committee may have additional questions for today's witness. 
and we ask that you respond expeditiously in writing to those questions. Without objections, members will be permitted 10 business days to submit statements for the record, including opening remarks and additional questions for the witness. Without objection, the chair recognizes the vice chair for a closing statement. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. I want to begin by thanking Ms. Hutchinson for her testimony today. We are all in her debt. Our nation is preserved by those who abide by their oaths to our Constitution. Our nation is preserved by those who know the fundamental difference between right and wrong. And I want all Americans to know that what Ms. Hutchinson has done today is not easy. The easy course is to hide from the spotlight, to refuse to come forward, to attempt to downplay or deny what happened. That brings me to a different topic. While our committee has seen many witnesses, including many Republicans, testify fully and forthrightly, this has not been true of every witness. And we have received evidence of one particular practice that raises significant concern. Our committee commonly asks witnesses connected to Mr. Trump's administration or campaign whether they've been contacted by any of their former colleagues or anyone else who attempted to influence or impact their testimony. Without identifying any of the individuals involved, let me show you a couple of samples of answers we received to this question. First, here's how one witness described phone calls from people interested in that witness's testimony. Quote, what they said to me is as long as I continue to be a team player, they know I'm on the right team. I'm doing the right thing. I'm protecting who I need to protect. You know I'll continue to stay in good graces in Trump world. And they have reminded me a couple of times that Trump. Wait a minute. You want to know whose witness statement that is? So I want you guys to take a look at this. I'm going to upload this picture, right? Hold on. Let me. Oops. Because I just. What? I'm listening to this and I'm like, what? Are you kidding? That's Akbar's statement. <laughs> Akbar statement. Akbar statement. That is what. Ali Akbar said, hold on, let me get this up for you guys. How do you know, Tony? You don't know anything. Yeah, I don't. I just Google shit, right? Hold on. Um, see, when he was talking, oh, shit. Really? Are you kidding? Let's get rid of that. I have like too many things here. Oops. Wrong picture. <laughs> I put the the midgets. Hold on. Here we go. She inserts herself to weaken Patreon. Unfortunately, she's obese and unpopular and blocked by Trump world. Trump world. And I'm blocked, right? So what, 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 what is it? I'll continue to stay in good graces in Trump world. <laughs> Ah, ha, ha. Ah, ha, ha. That's Ali Akbar. Right? That's Ali Akbar. Ali Akbar said this. You heard it here first. Ali Akbar said this. Because he's just dumb. So let's listen to the whole statement again. I'm rewinding it so you guys can hear it. Hold on. Let me 
get back. Okay. Here we go. Interested in that witness's testimony. Quote, what they said to me is as long as I continue to be a team player, they know I'm on the right team. I'm doing the right thing. I'm protecting who I need to protect. You know, I'll continue to stay in good graces in Trump world. And they have reminded me a couple of times that Trump does read transcripts. And just keep that in mind as I proceed through my interviews with the committee. Here's another sample in a different context. This is a call received by one of our witnesses. Quote, a person let me know you have your deposition tomorrow. He wants me to let you know he's thinking about you. He knows you're loyal and you're going to do the right thing when you go in for your deposition. I think most Americans know that attempting to influence witnesses to testify untruthfully presents very serious concerns. So now what we got to think about is who texted Ali Akbar and who would say that? Because Ali Akbar was on the fucking phone telling people that President Trump was going to march, but he wasn't going to march because that was already organized. So this whole grabbing the steering wheel for people that haven't been in the beast, you can't physically do that shit unless you're sitting next to the driver. And I don't think he was sitting next to the driver, right? The president did not sit next to the driver. So it's physically impossible for you to climb over unless he's modified the beast. Well, no, he wouldn't have modified it that quickly. I'm just saying, for those that haven't been in the beast, it's kind of actually not possible to grab the steering wheel, just saying. But if you remember that, um, I just posted on Telegram a picture of uh, Jack Posobiec saying, look right here where Alex Jones and Ali Akbar were telling people to go away from the Capitol. No, we have the audio. We even have their back chatter where they were talking amongst each other saying... And I quote, oh, the, uh, I just got off. They're going to come over here. So just tell them to come over here and wait here. Wait here, guys. We're going to march together with President Trump. Wait right here with us. They were not directing them away. And it was freaking Akbar on the phone right there. He was in there having that conversation. And if you remember, I told you that when I was down there, the two cops, the two vans that I went across, this is how you find out information, one of them said BLM was doing a hit. The other one was like, Trump is marching. And I'm like, which one is it? Two vehicles literally 50 feet apart and they don't know which story to stick to. Ah, that's right. So it's all bullshit. So the question is, who's the one that texted Ali Akbar? We should start taking names because he does have Ali social. And for some reason, he's allowed to run rampant. You should start putting on your thinking caps. Who's the cover up for? Is it President Trump? Or is it some people that pretended to be working on President's Trump side but weren't and are still pretending to? It's like they're all in. It's like they're all in. We will be discussing these issues as a committee, carefully considering our next steps. Mr. Chairman, thank you. I yield back. Gentlewoman yields back. Ms. Hutchinson, thank you. Thank you for doing your patriotic duty and helping the American people get a complete understanding of January 6th and its causes. Thank you for your courage in testifying here today. You have the gratitude of this committee and your country. I know it wasn't easy to sit here today and answer these questions, 
But after hearing your testimony in all its candor and detail, I want to speak directly to the handful of witnesses who have been outliers in our investigation. The small number who have defied us outright. Those whose memories have failed them again and again on the most important details. And to those who fear Donald Trump and his enablers because of this courageous woman and others like her, your attempt to hide the truth from the American people will fail. And to that group of witnesses, if you've heard this testimony today and suddenly you remember things you couldn't previously recall, or there are some details you'd like to clarify, or you discovered some courage you had hidden away somewhere, our doors remain open. The select committee will reconvene in the weeks ahead as we continue to lay out our findings to the American people. The chair requests those in the hearing room to remain seated until the Capitol Police have escorted the witness and members from the room. Without objection, the committee stands adjourned. It might as well have been those three clowns they are praising this bitch. And look, guys, she's literally a glorified secretary. Okay? She wasn't in on anything. She could have seen stuff. But she's also made of glass. What you need to see is exactly what I said was going to happen. This little tool, I don't know what kind of blackmail he might have on people. Who knows? But this little tool, I told you guys before the elections, is going to be the downfall of the whole MAGA train bullshit, right? The whole, oh, let's like all follow each other. Oh my God, this is so great. Let's create more confusion. Ali Akbar, I feel the earth. I'm a Christian, but I have sex with children that are 12, right? That's what he says. He's a Christian, yet he has orgies. He's a Christian, yet he blackmails. He's a Christian, and people ate that up. And then, and then you're wondering, why would these people have him infest President Trump's platform to keep him pacified? Who the fuck that nobody wants to find out about? But that's okay. Maybe other people found out exactly what happened and who had this bright idea. And the question is, who texted in that? Because I could tell you straight off the bat, Roger Stone does not speak to the president and General Flynn does not speak to the president. So who the hell? I know General Flynn is not texting Ali Akbar. And Roger Stone has sworn up and down saying, Ali Akbar, I never paid him. He never worked for me. I swear he said this. He said, I dare him to say that shit to my face because he could say that shit to Joe Flynn, but he can't say that shit to my face. <laughs> he cannot say that shit to my face. So the question is, who texted him that? Now it's about to get fun. Now you're going to see how they're going to do it. Now you're going to see how they're going to do it. You, huh? you know, I had an admin account, basic admin account right? The foundation, not basic, the foundation, one of the first setups. Who's to say I still don't have access to that shit? Hmm? Just saying. Ali Alexander, the founder of the so-called Stop the Steal group, testified Friday before a grand jury about his involvement in rallies supporting former President Trump ahead of January 6th. His testimony, which lasted nearly three hours, came after a grand jury subpoena in April seeking information and documents related 
to Trump's post-election events. In a statement, Alexander wrote he is assured that he is not a target of the investigation, but a, quote, fact witness. Alexander is the latest figure associated with the events from January 6th to face scrutiny from federal prosecutors. Joining us now, senior politics reporter for Insider, Camila DeChalas. Camila, great to see you again this morning. Uh, what more do we know about what Alexander said? What kind of information were prosecutors looking to get from him? So Alexander didn't provide a lot of details exactly what he told federal prosecutors, but he did note that he spoke to the January 6th committee six months prior about his interactions with Republican lawmakers and exactly his, his involvement in the Camille, we're having a little leading. trouble hearing you. Let's stop for one second and try again. Sorry. You know, the Europe, the Austria to DC connection is not what it used to be. Uh, let me try again. And hopefully we have your audio there. Camila, uh, give us a sense of what you were saying about what prosecutors were trying to get from Ali Alexander. So Alexander didn't provide a lot of information exactly about what he told federal prosecutors. But what we do know is that he met with the January 6th committee six months prior to his testimony, his uh, talking to the grand jury. And we know that he talked about his conversations that he had with Republican lawmakers leading up to the January 6th insurrection and exactly all the rallies he coordinated before the insurrection took place. And that's very pivotal because, as you know, during the January 6th committee hearing, there was a lot of testimonies about how Republican lawmakers requested presidential pardons following the insurrection. And so he has assured uh, reporters that, you know, he is fully cooperating as a witness, that he is, was not directly involved in the insurrection. And his role was to de-escalate uh, what transpired in the insurrection. But it's very telling about what federal prosecutors are doing to ramp up their investigation into the insurrection. Uh, Camille, let's also turn now to the January 6th hearings. Uh, they've been so compelling to this point. They're taking a little bit of a break. Those in the committee saying they need more time to gather more information. Uh, also, though, aides have suggested that they, they knew this would be a busy news cycle with the two European summits and the expected Supreme Court decisions. But we're going to have at least one, likely two more hearings in the weeks ahead. What's your, been your assessment of the case that they've made so far? Throughout these hearings, you have heard direct testimonies about how Trump was directly involved in an attempt to try to overturn the 2020 presidential election results. You heard direct phone conversations that Trump had with GOP officials at pressuring them to try to overturn the presidential results. Uh, the latest hearing, you heard former DOJ officials talking about their meetings with Trump, about how he Trump asked them to hold meetings, to issue issue press releases stating or even sending a letter to Georgia state legislators requesting, asking them and telling them that they had evidence of voter fraud, despite not having any evidence of it. And so what you'll see in these next hearings, and I've talked to uh, Benny Thompson, the chairman of this committee, is them presenting more evidence about Trump's direct role in, in trying to stir and prompt a insurrection on the Capitol Hill to overturn the presidential election result. Yeah, and aides have certainly telegraphed that when the hearings do resume, they have a lot more compelling evidence and testimony to present. Insiders, Camila Deshalas, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Camila, who had technical difficulties, is that what they have to say? It's going to be pretty interesting. It's going to get really interesting. Now, tomorrow I will be doing, I am going to be traveling because I have a campaign event, but I'll be on locals. Okay. Um, and I'm going to leave you with this. So underviewed. Such an amazing 
song. I hope you guys enjoy this. God bless. <laughs>